Hi, this is Sandra, the Queen of Survivor, and you're listening to the Survivor Historians. And now, here are four guys who would never get invited to eat at the Outback Steakhouse. And welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast that always takes the appropriate amount of bananas. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and yay! I'm Jay Fisher. Who the hell are you guys? I'm Mike Bloom, and JT delivered my baby, and yes, he did attach a letter. Uh, This is Paul Osselson, and I always podcast without an aspirin. (laughs) And here we are back on part three of our coverage of Heroes versus Villains, the without question the most popular and beloved Survivor season that we are trying our best to uh, do our best for. Right, we are to, to do justice towards it. Uh, now, do you th- guys think we've been, been doing well so far with this? No. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it, that's a hard no. Have we, have we ever done our best for anything? Like, really be honest. I think Panama. Our Panama podcasts were pretty good, and I think we made that season sound better than it actually is. So it was all downhill after season 12 is what you're saying. That's well, such season a, 12 that's is when a... I came back from my break, so I do want to take some credit for that if we're saying that's our best work. That's, that's such a good response. Like, we've done hundreds of episodes in all these seasons. Have you ever done anything? Well, there's that one Panama that one time. <laughs> yeah, the 30-minute extended rant on Bruce not being able to poop was really our piece de resistance. I mean, that's good radio right there. all right so we are back for part three of heroes versus villains which some would say is the most important important part of the season some would say the meat and potatoes of the season or the montana thanksgiving if you will but uh yeah so we're about to go through some really historic big moments in survivor history and i know people have been bugging us for months to get back and finally do an episode so you guys raring to go ready for this batch of episodes here I'm ready to go, but and, and I don't like to date our podcasts. And that's that's people don't know. We don't have a lot of hard and fast rules here on Survivor Historians, but one of the rules we have is try not to use sort of recent pop culture references around us because A, we take a while in between recordings normally, and two, uh, we sort of are trying to make this somewhat timeless. Somewhat. We succeed sometimes and fail other times. And so I'm not gonna reference anything sort of uh, around us pop culture wise, but Mike, you're a daddy. Yeah, I'm a daddy. It's very weird that in the course of my time with historians, I remember like a quote unquote announcing my engagement in Survivor All Stars coverage, and now we're on Survivor Heroes versus Villains, and I had a child. 
I, I, I hope this podcast doesn't end because I feel like I'm going to end as a result. Yeah, you've come a long way. If I recall, you were homeless when we first hired you, right? Yeah, I was that derelict guy that Mario happened to find on the streets on Santa Monica Boulevard. He took me in, gave me a home, and here I am with a child. I don't think he even spoke English. I think he used his historians to learn English. So yeah, To be fair, it's very debatable as to whether I do speak English at this point. <laughs> All right, yes. Congratulations, Mike. Welcome to the land of parenting, and I'm so glad. we. This is our first episode since you're a dad now, right? It is, yeah. And uh, I'm a little nervous because I believe uh, Russell said in one confessional that you know, Boston Rob had a newborn on Heroes versus Villains, and it's irresponsible uh, for him to be out there, and that's why he needed to send him home. So I'm very nervous as to what Russell's going to do to me when he finds out I'm podcasting with a newborn. Well, just to bring this all back full circle, the irony here is that Russell is the exact same size as your four-month-old son, right? Yeah, and he has the same hat, too. <laughs> His first word's going to be little bitches. <laughs> wow. That is terrible parenting, Mike. Some might say it's the greatest parenting of all time. Okay, so anything else to add before we jump right into this, Paul? No, Jay, let's, or... let's jump right into it. We really need to just get these out of the way. Let's go. But I just needed to talk about Mike ha having a child because, you know, th that's important. That's good That's good etiquette, Jay. You t I had a child, and then we talk about the child. We make sure everybody knows about it. Yeah, we shared. It's good. Hey, JT, would you like to have a baby? <laughs> okay. <laughs> to be fair, that's something the first boot would have asked JT at one point in time, so... <laughs> Wow, that was a great one. I tip my hat to that one. I hope everyone got that joke. Okay, so anyway, we are, as we left off on Heroes vs. Villains, we finished episode four. I believe that was Sari has just been voted out due to the uh, nefarious tactics of JT playing both sides and uh, blindsiding her. Uh, I think we gave Sari a nice little send-off. So we are about to start off with the Tom Westman episode here. And a whole bunch of fun stuff is about to happen in Heroes vs. Villains. And as we start off, the heroes come back to camp, and they're kind of shaken over what just happened. How did Sari get voted out? Like, we had the votes against Tom and Colby. How come they didn't go home? And then JT, of course, has been doing double dealing, and we'll see this all throughout the rest of the season. JT is kind of like on the hot seat now. He has to kind of explain to his allies why he voted for Sari. And now we get, of course, Colby and Tom so happy that JT has joined them. He is a hero now. He is a true hero. Uh, I love it. I also love Rupert's confession of, like, I'm a little pissed right now. <laughs> I'm a lot pissed off right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, this, this is one of the most significant plots of the season. And it's one of those things if people haven't watched Heroes vs. Villains in a while, you just remember the big stuff. The double idol play, Boston Robbins Russell, Sandra at the end and stuff. But, like... This is a very significant storyline through the middle of the season here, this JT double agent stuff. When you, like, see a, a Rupert confessional, do you try to, like, picture it, like, if if he was saying that confessional and it were Survivor Pearl Islands, how would we react to it versus how would we react to it now? I actually don't. Do you? I do, because I've said several times on this podcast— I feel like Rupert, more than any other survivor, is literally the most consistent person. He just is him. And you put him out on the on there. He he has not changed one iota ever. You know, and he's he's been in different places and you know, he's you know, somewhat changed his strategy a teeny tiny bit from uh bit to bit to bit. But like the, his attitude, his approach to just people, everything is literally just the same. But like it was so heroic and, you know, noble in Pearl Islands. And not that he's like some buffoon now, but like he's Rupert, right? Like he's just this own sort of entity, right? So he's just like, 
I'm a little bit pissed off. You know what? I'm a lot pissed off. And it's like, if he had said that in Pearl Island, some people would be like, oh, dude, Rupert's mad. He should really be used in English classes to teach what a static character is. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I'd keep Rupert away from any same. English class, considering he used the phrase a uh, animal. A uh, animal. Um, no, but I, I totally agree. And uh, I, I watched, uh, when, when doing this rewatched, I watched some of the um, interviews from the day after from some of the contestants. And I was like chuckling to myself as Tom, um, at, you know, at the end of this episode, we're going to lose him. And he's talking about Rupert. He's like, you know, there just was a lot of disappointment in this game. You you meet someone like Rupert who you think is going to be this awesome person, this awesome, you know, figure we've seen on TV. And really, he's just really annoying and not that great. And, you know, he thinks he knows everything. Like, he tell, you have to put the sticks in the fire exactly his way. So I just Well, like, well, well, Tom. Turnabout <laughs> is fair play. <laughs> <laughs> wow what a callback mike is on fire already we're two minutes into the podcast uh, well i was well, not around during the plow days, so i don't think like we can talk anymore yeah that was not our peak apparently according to mario no that was not that was not season 12 that was that, was, that wasn't very panama-esque is what i'm just trying to say <laughs> that was the rising action right we've been peaking for 30 years guys the jt stuff is interesting because like, I agree that it is a major storyline just about how crazy he is playing flat out. I mean, he says in the very beginning of the season that he wants to play like a villain because he knows that he can't. Unlike Rupert, he cannot play the exact same time every <laughs> single time. So he's playing much more fast and loose. You would think on paper, even if he had like switched over to the villains tribe, that they would be primed to get rid of him. But I really think it's because... They're so down in the numbers, and because the hero is just all about let's just keep winning challenges to to balance things out. I feel like JT got a little bit lucky. Otherwise, these next few episodes are all about basically Amanda and Candace just keep echoing the fact that, yeah, JT's the swing vote, and that's very weird because literally nobody should trust him. And you have to wonder if he benefits. He's going to immediately go with the merge, but I, I feel like he certainly does benefit actually from the fact that the heroes are so far down that he, he can't be expended at this point. Yeah, and it is Amanda, the one really on his his shit list, or she's he's on her shit list at the moment, and it'll be Candace later. So yeah, like you said, uh, it'll be all the JT. The, all the one back going back to Rupert for one thing, because it makes me bring up a question: Do you think Rupert realizes he's been on like four different seasons, or does he think it's just one long season and they just film him from time to time? <laughs> does he think he's like in a documentary that yes. sometimes he just goes to an island and they film him for portions of time? Where's my snake? I had a snake. Well, there's actually, there's a secret scene where Amanda says that Rupert was trying to make Balboa happen with lizards, <laughs> and he he pocketed a little lizard and called it Bubba, and apparently he, like, brings it to challenges, and he make, lets the lizard crawl oh. around in his hair. No, 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 <laughs> yeah. no. There's, there's no way that's not going to end like of Mice and Men, right? That thing's getting its neck snapped. <laughs> That's what I'm so glad I did not watch that scene because that's one of the saddest things I've ever heard. <laughs> Which one, Rupert or of mice and men? <laughs> Both. I mean, of, of look, snakes and lizards. I'm sure people are gonna sit here and go, "What is the best Survivor podcasts to listen to?" And you know, we're gonna talk about Sesternino and you know, uh, all these other sort of things that are out there. But I got to tell you, do any of them compare Rupert to Lenny? <laughs> <laughs> tell me about the snake, Tom. The English class across the hall for me is literally reading Mice of Men right now. I was in there the other day to go grab something. So um, as they finish up the book, I'll be sure to maybe bring in some uh, some Rupert into the mix here to kind of do some, you know, text to text, you know, comparisons. 
I will say, well, fun now, fact, that's why nobody's heard from Krista in like 20 years, because Rupert snapped her neck and hit her under the hay. <laughs> oh, <God>. no. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So many, we go so deep here. Wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, I do remember that old Drake tribe with, with, with Lenny and Curly's wife. Remember, Fairplay used to have his his, his uh, hand in the, the glove that would keep his hand soft. Isn't that enough Mice and Men reference? Now I'm going real literary. I don't remember. All right. We'll, we're for jump. Let's jump over to the Villains Tribe, away from Rupert from killing people. And we're on the Villains Tribe here. And, of course, they are pretty much dominating the game at this point. They're just steamrolling the poor, hapless heroes. And, you know, they're so high and mighty right now that Coach is going to take them down on the beach and do a little Coach Chi, which I'm very excited to talk about this scene. You're excited about to talk about a coach scene? I know. Listen, I am Jay, he only has a handful of episodes left to like simmer in this. Yeah, okay. give me my coach okay. moments, uh, guys, Jay. Guys, Mario is going to talk about coach. Microphone on mute, CN5. <laughs> I just wanted to point out, this isn't so much about coach. This is about the scene where everybody's mocking him mm-hmm. as he's doing coach chi. And Tyson, if you watch behind him, is doing literally the karate kid crane technique. <laughs> and off to the side, Sandra and Courtney are shooting looks at each other and cracking each other up. So it's not so much about Coach as it is the complete lack of respect for Coach, which I think everybody appreciates. Well, I love I, – I like about how, like, you know, Coach has to explain this is his, like, own version that he's – you know, this is his own thing that he's invented here to really bring things together where you just really combine body and mind and, like, like as if, like, that's, like, an idea that he came up with, as if there's no other practices out there for that. I like the fact that Coach says the key to, is telling your mind to make your body flex every muscle. And for some reason, I have the image of Coach just, like, seizing sporadically as he tenses every single muscle at the same time. <laughs> I think that's the reaction he had when he saw his edit for the first time. <laughs> exactly. Oh, gotta, gotta do my Coach Chi at this point. But one person is not falling for all that meditating crap. Yeah, surprisingly, we're going to see a lot of Russell in the next couple episodes, and they're going to be all be very similar scenes of him looking for idols, ignoring everybody on the tribe, and repeatedly telling us how he's better than everyone and how they're all terrible. Yeah, this is a fun little microcosm where you have Russell brushing off a social activity to go find an idol that is blatantly within the eyeline of everybody else. It just <laughs> it really represents how he is going to do some interesting things, certainly in this next batch of episodes, but the brusqueness and lack of tact with which he does it is just a nice representation of how his end games usually end up the way they do. Yeah, and he didn't even get to make fun of Coach, which is how the villains bond. So it's that, again, Russell's game in a nutshell. Don't do what all the popular kids are doing that will endear you to them. Just do something else. And again, which I should point out that the endearing thing is mocking Coach to his face. All right, so just a little preamble here. You can see where the heroes are. You can see where the villains are as we go into the first challenge here. And this is our Episode 5, Reward Challenge, and I believe this is the one they called Schmergen Brawl, which the subtitle of that is Injure Somebody. Yeah, why did they bring this back? I know that we're going to have bowling come back as well, but did they just really feel like they had to bring back two Samoa challenges? It does appear so, yeah. And this, this, this challenge was always a terrible idea, so they bring it back. And, of course, it will prove to be a terrible idea because we're going to end up with an injury here. But uh, let's, let's go through some fun stuff at the start here. I should point out there's a great editor's joke here. I don't know if people caught this. I actually did not ever catch this one before. This is almost a funny 115 moment, if I had noticed it before, where Jerry, at the start of the challenge, they're talking about the reward. And Jeff says, the reward for this one is chocolate. And Jerry's like, oh, my God, chocolate. All I want is chocolate. And cho- oh, I love chocolate. And they immediately cut to James. So 
it's a nice little reference to Australia of her just wanting some hot guy to pour chocolate over her back, and we cut to the one black guy in the tribe. So thank you, editors, for that one. Well, that's it's really fun as well because again, our you know we're gonna see Colby in. I mean, this is just a weird batch of episodes for Colby as well, but in a very reticent, you know, Colby is not having fun, typical moment on Survivor Heroes versus Villains of him representing the heroes in refusing the chocolate. And I guess it's because he ain't no Hershey bar, but it still is the most, like, one of the biggest sourpuss moments I've seen in Survivor ever. Is like, Jeff hands them the plate of chocolate to eat between, and the heroes just stoically pass the plate while completely staring forward the entire time like they're in some sort of cult really makes a statement uh, like the, that whole like move they do i was thinking about this i was like okay if they win was it that cool no and then if they lose what they end up doing also not that cool like i, I don't really know like what the statement really was supposed to be there because i don't think you win either way and what if one of what if one of the heroes really wanted chocolate now they're kind of mad at their tribe mates. like i would have wanted that like what if candace was pro chocolate did they vote on this I, I have no idea. I mean, you have to imagine that might be like a Rupert type of edict, right? Definitely a Rupert idea. <laughs> 100%. I have been racking my brains to figure out why, because every time I see Colby on this season, I just feel sad. And I, and, I, and I was trying to figure out why, and I finally figured it out. Colby is Brooks from Shawshank Redemption. Is <laughs> <laughs> he carving his initials somewhere? Colby was here. He might because, you know, he, he, he was part of this franchise at the very beginning. You know, he was it, it was when he was free in the society. Right. And then, you know, he goes off and does other things and he comes back here to Heroes versus Villains all these years later. And he's really literally like, this is what I'm coming back to. Like, this is the area. Oh, my God, this is terrible. Yeah, he has a he has a secret scene where he's like, you know what? I want to come out here and I figured I'm just going to do well by having a good time and being positive. I'm having a tough time right now. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God. I mean, he's going to have a little bit of redemption here, but I mean, it also doesn't help that he's going to have a little bit of a, a little bit of a fight with his bromance with Jeff Probst in front of everybody else. <laughs> yeah. This is one that um, several people have mentioned. I should have put on the funny 115. This is the Jeff and Colby having a little slap fight here. It's just not good. It's just, it's Brooks bagging grocery groceries at that grocery store. It's just not good. <laughs> Damn, has anybody checked on Colby lately? I know he went to that halfway house. Is he okay? He just strung out on chocolate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, this is the uh, the famous fight here where Jeff presents chocolate to the heroes, and the heroes are all like, no thank you. And Jeff's like, it's chocolate. And he singles out Colby. And what is the exact phrase here where Colby's like, let's go. Let's do the challenge. And Jeff's like, I got the message, brother. He says, uh, I'm not annoying with you. I'm ready to get to the challenge. And Jeff says, it's a free offer of chocolate. And Colby says, don't need it. Let's go. And Jeff says, I got the message, brother. We'll go when I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, and, and people have pointed out the other irony about this scene that I, I have always appreciated is that Colby is so gung-ho on competing in this challenge. Let's go. I want to compete. I want to win. And Jeff's like, all right, who's sitting out? And Colby's like, I'll sit out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is. <laughs> maybe maybe he wanted to sit out to like talk with probes on the side to be like you really embarrassed me back there. You know that, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Reed. I mean, Jeff. <laughs> I, th I think Colby needs to practice some I can, you know, or some I statements. You know, like I feel sad when you <laughs> embarrass me in front of my tribe mates. Well, it's interesting because I think like this might be the turning point where we start to see in terms of graphs of Survivor contestants, the love of Colby waning and the love of Boston Rob waxing 
in Jeff Probst's eyes, and I wonder if this was maybe like one of those steps that led to their eventual breakup. That's a very interesting point. Although I do have to defend Colby just a little bit because he gets crapped on a lot in this season. But I will point out his arc through the next couple episodes is actually pretty strong. It's kind of like he will get called fat by James. He'll get called out. But he actually leads them to a couple wins after that. And the heroes have this big comeback. So I do have to defend him a little bit and say he actually has a nice arc here in the middle. Until JT fucks it up for everybody. So anyway, we'll get to that. Okay, so Schmirgen Brawl, the let's beat the crap out of people challenge and jump around on unstable terrain is a horrible idea, and we're going to go to it now. And right off the bat, you got these people in this pit, and they're just battling it out for coconuts and shoving each other. And like literally like a minute into the challenge, James lands weird, and he twists his knee. So wonderful. Here we go. James is injured again. Are we sure that James wasn't caught robbing a production camp and twisted his knee on the way out, and they had to stage this injury? <laughs> Yes, that is the uh, the conspiracy. I've heard that. I heard I heard Russell actually took his ACL out of his knee. It was a Russell got all the credit for it, and Parvati as well. Parvati caused the ground to be somewhat unstable, so she gets credit for it as well. Well, so. I thought maybe there was an idol in his knee, so maybe that's why. <laughs> I'm a bird is ACL. Yes, <laughs> Russell. Russell is about knee level, so he like bit him. That's what happened right <laughs> on the knee. Well, so it looked like, I can't really tell from what I watched, I don't know if you guys uh, were able to see, it looked like James jumped for the ball midair and, like, Russell either purposely or accidentally, like, jostled him and he just landed on his knee badly, because, like, he doesn't get pulled from the game, it's not like he completely broke his knee or anything, it's just that he sort of pulled a ligament, and so he walks kind of funny the next couple episodes. Yeah, what? Well, the doctors, they're, you kind of have to listen to what they're saying. They're very, it's, it's kind of muddled in the background, but it sounds like either his ACL or his MCL, and that's that joint around the knee. It's very, when an athlete pops that, it's very bad. And James doesn't quite pop it, he stretches it. It gets really expanded. It didn't quite pop all the, all the way. And I think what happened was he was trying to land, and if you look, there's the ground right next to a little log. And I think he thought he was going to land on the log, and he just kind of bent his knee weird, weird so he kind of fell at a weird angle. That would be my medical uh, expertise. I believe Candace backs that up as well, and Candace is a med student, so there you go. Yeah, well, we didn't have, you know, she came to Stephanie's aid during the whole shoulder fiasco in episode one. Why did she not do it this time around? I don't know. It's a good question. She, she's a villain. She's not a hero like JT and Tom and Colby. All right, so anyway, uh, the, uh, the heroes win the first point, even without James. It's like, it's like six against five at a certain point because James is out, and James can barely walk. He's wobbling around. And somehow the heroes win the first one, but it's all villains after that. And the, the big takeaway from this isn't who wins. It's how violent this whole challenge is. Yeah, JT is wild. Like, he is throwing Boston Rob around. He flat up, like, picks up Coach and slams him to the ground like he's in WrestleMania. Yeah, and then there's the other one where Rupert face plants Jerry into a post. By far my favorite scene of the whole challenge because like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to do that. And then she was just like, whatever. Or she's just like, yeah, okay, whatever. He's like, okay. He like kind of gives up. Like I'll try to be nice. And you know, he was thinking like, that's for my log cabin. (laughs) (laughs) That's those moments. And like, you know, I, those are, I know we talk about it later on during that last um, challenge, reward challenge before the merge when you have the Colby and Jerry right next to each other. But I do love these moments. And like in all-star season like this for people who have kind of such a history behind them and they interact again, and you kind of think back at all the history that Jerry and uh, yeah. and Rupert have had, and you know that they were together that night in the log log cabins. So many great, so many great um, stories behind that interaction. 
they're going to bury you under the hay like Krista. <laughs> he should have he should have said, uh, um, is it worth it now, bitch? <laughs> I don't know if Hero Rupert would say that. That seems more That's like true. someone else. Sorry, yeah. not these people are static. But if you said it think in more Islands. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, think it more Lenny. What would Lenny, what, what would have Lenny done here? I hit her and she went down. <laughs> she didn't like down. <laughs> She had such soft hair. God, I should have re- reread that book last night. I know, but I didn't realize there was homework like for it. this. <laughs> I love that so, yes. like, we have no idea what's going to happen, and then we come to the podcast, and now we're talking about Of Mice and Men. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about freaking Mice and Men. Yeah, I reiterate that for our listeners. We have This is not planned. This is all spontaneous. This was not intentional. <laughs> we just all inherently think Lenny is funny and Rupert is Lenny. So there you go. So Rupert's reign of terror against the females in Survivor history continues, but the villains win the challenge, and now the heroes are kind of screwed because already they're getting beat up in this game, and now James is injured, and James is their best athlete, and so medical has to come look at James, and they're worried he's going to be evac'd. But let's push all that aside because now we go to the villain's reward, which is one of the more iconic scenes in the season, the chocolate feast where Russell is going to gather his troops or troop in the form of just telling Parvati that he has the idol ball, drinking an extraordinary amount of milk out of a pitcher, which for some reason really disgusted me while I watched it. Yeah, surprisingly, the one who eats the most chocolate and gets sick is Jerry, though. Surprisingly, she loves chocolate. All right, so what's happening here? They all go swimming, and this is where uh, Rob's allies all discuss. They're kind of pulled each other. You know, it's still Rob against Russell in the season, and Rob pulls all his allies aside, and they're like, does Russell have the idol? Like, that little troll was out looking for the idol right in the middle of Coach Chi, like the gall of him to disrupt Coach's brilliance. And Rob even tells us in a confessional, he's like, I've never played with idols before. This is like a different dynamic. It changes the game a lot. And now we're going to cut over to Russell where he, what is he, courts Parvati, and he says, I got the idol. You can join me. You can ride my coattails, baby. And she's like, well, I don't ride anybody's coattails. I'm my own person. And then – uh now, now they get the, the plan to pull in Coach, because apparently Coach is the outlier on the tribe. He's the outsider. He's way at the bottom of Boston Rob's alliance, shockingly. And Russell and Parvati are like, you know, Coach is scared. Let's show him Russell's idol. He's like a little puppy. He'll come with us for the, uh, for the security, and this will lead to the, the Knights of the Roundtable scene. Oh, my God. I, don't, I can't believe we actually saw a full-out knighting occur on Survivor. I, you know, do you think Russell in that moment was like, what the hell did I get myself into? And Coach is like, yes, I'll work with you. And that to officially solidify this alliance, we need to go through the pomp and circumstance of a royal ceremony to, uh, you know, commemorate our alliance. Yeah, this is a goofy over-the-top scene. And, and, you know, I like Coach, but I do hate the, again, I hate the, the legend of Russell, how it's built up. And now even Coach is now bowing to him on camera. And it's one of those things, you know, Russell's like, you know, Coach, it would be awesome if we did a Knights of the Round Table moment. And you know, you know, Russell only got as far as, you know, Coach, it would be. And Coach was already bowing and doing the right to the Knights of the Round Table. So he's like, Coach bows before Russell. He's like, you have the idol. You're amazing. And I have to point out the unintentional comedy in the scene, as always with most Coach scenes, is that Coach is about six foot eight and Russell is about four foot two. So it's quite amusing to watch them talking to each other where Russell's looking straight up at him. <laughs> well, the only way to make it better is if uh... – uh, coach would have also, you know, thrown grapes in his mouth during the nighting. <laughs> then they could have really used that scene for every episode for the rest of the season. Yeah, maybe Coach should have been feeding him the milk. 
<laughs> yes. So anyway, coach gives us another great coach quote. And again, it's, I always feel bad when I hear that coach watch these episodes and realize how silly they made him look in the edit. But there's a coach, I mean, he kind of asks for it where coach gives a quote here where he's like, I told Russell, I would like to be in with him because he's, he's got idol. He's powerful. And coach says, if you give me your loyalty, it's almost impossible for me to betray that trust. <laughs> he almost cannot do it. It's not physically possible. I just have this image of like, I don't know, did he visit like a witch and the witch cursed him where like he is forbidden now? He's honor bound no matter what under penalty of, I don't know, something death. Yes. Coach has been through like basically the monkey's paw. They gave him everything he wanted, but there's a terrible price. You, you can make all the Knights of the Round Table references you want to, but in exchange, you must agree to every offer that's been given to you. <laughs> yes, it's terrible. So poor coach, he's trapped now, he, unable to break this bond that he chose to give to somebody. So anyway, this is going to be Coach's dilemma for the next couple episodes. Should he go with Russell or should he stay with Boston Rob, his idol, despite the fact that his idol has placed him at the very bottom of the alliance? So, poor coach. Anyway, so we go back to the heroes camp and the big story over there is that James, poor James is now gone. He's been injured. What are we going to do? I do love that you have Amanda, you know, again, if you're talking about preseason connections, obviously Amanda and James played two seasons of Survivor together back to back. So she's very remorseful and she's like, I just hope he's going to come back and immediately jump cut to JT. I don't think James is coming back and River replies like, yeah, I don't think so either. It's just a great like, it's a very similar to South Pacific of, you know, Ozzy telling Cochran like, you definitely have a chance, jump cut to he definitely doesn't have a chance. Yeah, and this is I will I will turn the reins over to Paul here in a second, but this is the Amanda breakdown scene where Amanda tells us that she has a big brother, his name is James, and we've been together three times now. We're always so close and he always gets injured and it's horrible and she starts crying these big sloppy tears and having a big breakdown. And uh, I will I will leave it to you Paul to tell the rest cuz this is your girlfriend. Why? <laughs> <laughs> what connection do I have to Amanda Kimmel? <laughs> All right, so the little Montana handoff here to Paul. Please take us away, Paul. Tell us what happens with James and Amanda. Yeah, I'll jump into that in just one second. It was funny. Um, uh, I mentioned uh, the the English teacher with the Lenny, the um, mice and men stuff. But then I've met a couple other teachers this year that they were like, "Oh, um, did you ever know that um, there was there was a girl from from the school who was on Survivor? Yeah, I think she almost won a couple times, like telling me this." And I was like, "Oh, uh huh, yeah." <laughs> how like, how cool yeah. did you think you played it, Paul? <laughs> I don't know. They're like, "Yeah, she was in my class. It was kind of cool." Um, <laughs> I should have dug for a little bit more information. I, I here's what I need. I need to go down um, to you know talk a little bit about the scene. I need to go down to the gym teachers and ask how did Amanda run in gym class? Because I think <laughs> that's the big question here. Because we see um, the most graceful, elegant run of a survivor I think we've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, let's let's paint the picture for people. So Amanda is telling us she's like. All I want right now is my hero, my knight, James, to come walking back into camp. That's all I want right now. And she's crying, and it's so sad. And, and so, she's like, the, the exact quote is, I just want to see him walk down that beach. I really do. And so Amanda's over on the beach, and all of a sudden you hear the music pop up in the background. And I'm going to use a little uh, WWE parlance here. Good God, that's James Clements' music. What's he doing here? And James comes entering stage left from down the beach. And Amanda's so excited she will run to him. Only, I'm not sure Webster's would define this as a run, what she does. It's more of a bounce. 
I don't, how would you describe this to people who've never, maybe not seen it recently? Horse trot. Yeah, it's a, it's a tale of two halves, right? I feel like the bottom is something akin to running, uh, even though it seems like it's more of those, like, when you jog in place at, like, a crosswalk to try to keep your heart rate up while you're stopping and waiting for the traffic <laughs> to clear. But the top half is like she's not moving at all. Her arms are completely motionless. She's sort of doing, like, a, like half a Naruto run, but not very successfully. You know, if there were only somebody in this game that could teach her how to make her mind and her body work together. <laughs> if only there were a villain that could perhaps come over here and teach her. If only she was on the other tribe. Do you think, uh, do you think later on Amanda should erase James instead of JT? <laughs> so, so, so what you're trying to say is that the lower half of Amanda running was Survivor 2 and Survivor 8 Colby. <laughs> yeah. And then essentially the top half was... Survivor 20, Colby. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the uh, the running version of Superman in a fat suit. <laughs> the thing about Amanda running is if she was in a pool, like if she was in water and she did those motions, she would go up, not sideways. It would be the weirdest motion. So I half expect her in this scene to like blast off like an astronaut straight up. It would be an interesting scene if that happened. But I should point out that James starts walking to her, and James can barely move. He's hobbling around. He's got the biggest knee brace on. And Amanda's doing the most embarrassing little bounce run to him. And I love that at the end, he just stands there and waits for her to come to him. He's like, yeah, come over to here. I'm awesome. So we get to watch an even extended version of Amanda running. She goes has to go the extra, like, 100 yards past where she would have gone anyway. So very thankful for James for uh, taking a hit for the school of comedy there. And I do love, Mario, you mentioned this in your opener, but... I did not realize that Rupert's apparent catchphrase is yay. Yes. Like, we talked, we talked about the very demure, demure yay from the premiere that I remember so fondly, but I forgot that he says it at least five more times over the course yes. of this batch of episodes. I wrote it in my notes for this scene specifically. Just yay, yay, yay. You just hear him say it in the background. It's ridiculous. Who's, who earnestly says yay? Lenny. Somebody who drinks 2% cow's milk. Yes. It's consistent. He's so consistent. I'm I'm sorry. It's just he never changes. He just never changes. He is the same. Just how the context is around him changes. It's just amazing. And that's also what Lenny would say every time after George told him the story about the farm. Yay. <laughs> We're going to keep going with this. This is too good. I like this. All right. So so James I gotta, is back. I got a spark note this over here on the side here so I can I keep up. Yeah. Well, you know, English students who listen to this episode get AP credit. I don't know if they realize that. I could just like furiously hear Paul like hammering John Steinbeck into his. Uh... John Steinbeck loves Montana, you guys. Paul, stop like, hammering John Steinbeck. Like um, every every like one out of every three Montanans has somewhere on their social media the quote about about um, there's a lot of feelings for a lot of different things, but what he feels for Montana is something different or something like that. Or you don't know what love is like until you're in it, and that's like Montana. So the best quote was like a vagary of Montana is different from other states would be like the best described quote for Montana. That's the Spark Notes version of the John Steinbeck quote. <laughs> you know it's a cool place when one semi-famous person at one point in one part of life said something kind of nice about Montana, and everyone's like, dude, let me tell you what. <laughs> yeah, and I should point out that one out of three Montanas also has a cotton gin. So there you go, Mon or Paul. You almost called him Montana. <laughs> I almost one called him Montana. That's his nickname. That's Paul's cool street nickname. One out of three Montanans is Eli Whitney? <laughs> 
I mean, I don't want to bring out the flow chart, but that's where we're going with this. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is why people listen to historians for the very random historical anecdotes. Well, I can't wait till we get to the spinning Jenny references a little bit later. <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> so James is back, although James is hobbled. He's been given the Annie Wilkes treatment, and he's got the bad knee, and uh, he can barely move. And we're going to go to episode five, Immunity Challenge. And I kind of forgot how fast these episodes go. It's like long challenge, a couple scenes, long challenge, a couple – like these episodes zip by now. Well, yes. because that's the the bread and butter. Like when they do the Schmergen brawl, like I was going to say earlier, but, you know, hey, we got into Of Mice and Men topics and all that sort of stuff, is that people like these challenges where they just beat the crap out of each other. They're always popular. And, yes, people get hurt from time to time, but it's kind of like the whole – I don't know. Like I know that people watch NASCAR for the car racing and the engines and the and the and the pit changes and stuff like that. But I know that there's a healthy percentage of people who like watch these high speed car races and kind of go, "Hey, is there gonna be a crash at some point?" And it's sort of I feel that way about um, these you know really physical challenges. Is that people are like, "Hey, is someone gonna get hurt?" And it's not like they're wishing people to get hurt, but yes and no, right? Like it's a weird sort of human nature kind of thing. And so you take these extremely elite players of Survivor who have all done like, who a lot of them have done like amazing physical and or social feats in the game. And you just are basically like, let's have a challenge. Let's have one of those get hurt challenges. Let's do another get hurt challenge. Let's do a third get hurt challenge. And then people are starting to get hurt. And I mean, what do the producers expect at this point? It's like either, either we lose someone or we have a double uh, a double boot episode after the merge. So I mean, either right. way, they we can work this out. And that's like a weird thing to it's a weird thing to think about. Where like the producers are like, yeah, maybe someone gets hurt and gets exited, but you know, we've sort of budgeted for that. Well, also not to mention, I mean, look at the theme is heroes versus villains, which I feel like maybe outside of fans versus favorites was like the big theme centric season, considering that it was also the twentieth season. So you have to feel like they're like let's make these tribes face off against each other in any way possible, and that's how you get the physicalized versions of these face-offs. You know, I feel like the heroes versus villains rivalry is a little less apparent if it's, okay, do battleship against one another. So they're going to send them, you know, snarling against each other, especially considering these heroes are so do or die that they're willing to throw themselves into each and everything they do. Yeah, and and speaking of physical challenges, we are going to oh have boy. yeah. This is the uh, blindfolded puzzle challenge, which does not sound like a physical injurious challenge. Although, unless you realize that this challenge is also called the nutshot challenge, where people walk around blindfolded with obstacles around them that are all right around testicle high. There's no uh, big Tom S moment. Right? I know Boston Rob like gets hit pretty good and gets the wind knocked out of him by taking a puzzle piece to the chest, but nobody takes like a straight beaner, right? <laughs> there's not, but there's a great moment in this challenge where if people haven't seen it in a while, the two collars, you have one collar on each side, and they have Jerry as the collar for the villains because she was such an amazing collar back in Australia when she blew that Doritos challenge. Doritos. And Doritos. And then James, of all people, has to be the hero's <laughs> collar. And there's a great part in this challenge where at one point the heroes are way ahead and Rupert and, and uh, I think it's Rupert and Candace are holding a uh, obstacle and they're walking right towards Russell. And James is like, walk over him, walk over Russell, steamroll him. So there's some of that in there. Yeah, who knew? James finally has one voice, even though he almost loses one voice by the end. Like his frog ass voice being like, walk your ass, walk it, walk it. <laughs> That's a great impression. We've just added an impression to the mix that Mike can now do horse James. 
Oh no, uh, Katrina Kimmel's ears just perked up about hearing Horace James. Damn, <laughs> some of these callbacks are killing me. Okay, I was, so... I was wondering. I was wondering when Horace would come into play here. We just couldn't fit it into the bouncy run scene. We were all trying. You could hear the wheels spinning. It just didn't fit in there. Eh, Paul just wasn't stable enough to do it. <laughs> like a horse stable. <laughs> all right. That's so the no... joke. Thank you, Paul. Anytime. All right. So, yeah, not too much to say about this challenge other than the heroes are surprisingly all ahead because James is a fantastic caller. But the heroes blow it on the puzzle, and the villains win, and it's the villain. Who are the puzzle makers? Rob, Coach, and Sandra. Probably mostly Rob <laughs> and maybe Sandra. I don't know. But anyway, the villains win, and the heroes are going to tribal council again for the fourth out of five times, I believe. It's, things are not going well for the hapless heroes here. Yeah, JT puts it pretty well when he says, like, they're basically bad at anything but sumo wrestling at this point. Yes. And again, we're going to continue the uh, storyline. This is really the storyline of the middle part of the season. You got Rob against Russell on one side, and the other side is JT just being a dick and just being in the middle on every vote and just lying to everybody. And this is where it's going to go again, where JT is now in the middle. You got, what, Candace, Rupert, and Amanda on one side. You got Tom and Colby, or James is in there somewhere too. But JT is right in the middle, and JT has vowed allegiance to both sides. And Tom and Colby are like, you know, he'll do the right thing. He's a hero like we are. And JT's like, no, I won't. And so it's really going to come down to will JT turn on Tom and vote out old Tom Westman or will they take out James and his lame knee? Will it be Tom or James tonight? It's Tom. Yeah, it's Tom. I, I, <laughs> does anybody have anything to add about that? I will ruin the suspense. No, let's eulogize Tom. Let's go. It's pretty cut and dry. Mario, it's a challenge. Let's go. Let's some, go. Uh, Bring some, it on. Some, some, Jeff, some nice Jeff Probst dick moments uh, over the course of these batch of episodes when Jeff tells James, my niece could beat you in a race right now. And James replies, no, she couldn't. So, again, <laughs> we had JT. We could have easily had Amanda or Jeff Probst's niece get flown out to Samoa to race James if they really had to do that test. That would have been cool. I would have liked to see that because I, I will say, I don't know how other people feel about this episode. I always thought this was stupid. Why would you vote out Tom over a guy who can't even walk? Like Tom is a – just for the survivor historian to me, just realize, you know, Tom's like a legend. One of maybe – you can make the argument the all-time greatest survivor winner. I mean there's the argument to be made for that. And I always hated how he goes out here. He just gets punked out like a little bitch because they want to keep James just for numbers just because the micro crew all wants to hold on together. So it's like that, that's always annoyed me here. Does it help at all that due to next episode, he probably would have gone next episode if not this one? I mean, it, it would have helped a little. I do remember at the time, this is the point in the season that I kind of checked out a little bit when I was watching it live. I'm like, it's ridiculous that injured James is now getting further than Tom in a season about legends. That that really bothered me at the time. I'm not sure if it would have changed much had he gone the next episode either. Uh, allow me to be slightly controversial here. What about Tom? I mean, Tom has, you know, in his previous two seasons of Survivor that he played before uh, heroes versus villains. I mean, he he went very far in both games, and we love Tom. He's a big personality. I have nothing bad to say about Tom. What about Tom's gameplay? In any way, is basically like, well, you got to keep Tom. He's literally like what he's done in those games was he was a number in a in a in a solid alliance. No, I agree. It's the same argument with Stephanie. My argument yeah. is that Tom and Stephanie had no chance in the season because they came in not being part of the crew that, you know, pre-games alliances and goes to all the charity events. So, like, they were dead meat from the start because they weren't really the popular kids. So that's more of my argument. It's previous season. Sorry, not previous two. I'm, I'm an idiot. But, you know, 
<sighs> so I know during All Stars, uh, we talked a lot about how it was interesting to see Ethan 2.0 because he was very different from Ethan 1.0 in that Ethan 2.0 had his back against the wall, pretty much knew he couldn't win from the get-go, and so just had to mercilessly fight every time, and so we got a little bit of a sassier Ethan and angrier Ethan, and just a really fun character to watch. Do we feel the same way about Tom 2.0? Because yes. It's, it's, a yes. Very, it's a very similar type of thing, where you know he's really on the back of it from the get-go, which is the exact opposite of his previous game, and so it's a, I feel like we're seeing a different side of Tom this season. And I would argue this, like, they know Tom better probably because they've met him at, you know, events and, you know, or or just through the grapevine, obviously, than us uh, hoi polloi that are out here. But Tom played this game slightly different than he did when he was on uh, in Palau, right? So, like, um, I, I guess I would sit there and go, you know, we, we've talked about Rupert being horrifically consistent. Like, James is also, to a point, pretty consistent. Like, a yeah. little different, but very consistent. You know what you get with James. And, you know, James had the he had the Micronesia Alliance here and all that sort of stuff. But, like, Tom, and, and to a lesser extent here, JT, but JT had some power wielding within himself. But Tom is being a little bit unpredictable, and I would be wary of that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, for if you're on the other side of the alliance, it's clearly he's the one to take out. I just yeah. always look at Survivor from history, historian perspective, and that's the thing that always bugs me that these – it's funny that you say that you call them now, but these – at the time, you would have called these new school players, JT, Amanda, James, Candace. These are all relatively yep. new school, yep. and it always bugged me that they could team up and take out the old school just because there's more of them and just because they they've all know each other. So that's my argument with Tom, that he just really had no chance. So I agree to your point. He was the one to take out. Clearly, he's the biggest threat. But it just always bugged me that he wasn't kind of treated like the uh, legend that he was here. I guess. But at the same time, this is not a new concept. Like, remember in Survivor Amazon, the whole point of, like, trying to keep Shauna around just because Shauna could be yes. a number in their alliance. Like, it's it's the whole, like, this person is clearly weak in some way. Like, they either don't want to be here or James has the giganticest leg brace I've ever seen in my life you know, on his leg at this moment, but it's like, you need his number, you know, and, and that's the the sad truth about it. And, you know, sitting here and going, Tom's a legend, you need to respect his legend. It's like, what about this game respects anyone ever? Yeah, no, I agree. It's just I, as a viewer, I think Survivor in some ways is set up not to provide and a satisfying viewing experience. And this would be a prime example of that, where just because the goal is to keep numbers, you keep this guy who's going to be gone soon. Anyway, he can barely even walk just for number reasons. And it's the same with the Shauna. I do remember making the same argument with Shauna. Like, that's just not satisfying as a viewer, because, you know, it's just it's a terrible move. Move, but they have to do it so it's just it's one of the arguments where i think survivor the game does not always sync up with survivor the viewing experience well and i would also say that i think tom's arc over the course of this five episodes i enjoyed it especially at the time i was not happy with this episode because i also had the same mentality that candace does of like james is injured yes he wasn't medevaced but he's still going to weaken a tribe that can't afford to lose anything plus james has not been coming off well at all over the course of this, especially with the Stephanie stuff. So I was all in on Tom Westman 2.0. I love Tom Westman 2.0. He's Again, he's a little scrappier. He's a little sassier. He's able to prove someone like Boston Rob is like, I, I don't know what to do with these idols in the game. Tom was able to find one and play one successfully. So he was able to really, you know, uh, mix it up there with some of those newer school techniques. And I think, like you guys said, that's why he's the proper choice above Colby. I'm going to be honest. I did not... And I don't know if I said it at the time. I mean, I don't remember all of my Palau podcasts, you know, uh, as it is. But 
I don't have any sort of hatred or, or dislike for Tom Westman, but I think I've said before, a lot of times in Survivor, you gravitate toward people who remind you of you in some way, um, either, you know, sometimes physically, but a lot of times just personality wise, you sort of gravitate toward people that you think you would relate to and or be when you're out there on the island, maybe. I don't know. I guess maybe that's something that I think about. But Tom Westman is very much not me. He's very New York and he's, you know, uh, an extremely good looking, well-built firefighter hero of the people. I am none of those things. I am abs <laughs> like I'm very much zero of those things. He is a wonderful human being. But at the same time, like I watched him uh, on his season and it's not like I actively rooted against him, but it's like I didn't connect with him per se. Well, that's and, not fair. You had Karen there to distract you. I mean, so. there was Karen. Do yep, there is there is that as well. But I think we talked about it at the time. To me, the compelling character in that season, other than you know the Oolong stuff, I think was Ian, right? And you know yeah. there was all that Ian sort of stuff going around. And then Tom wins, and it's you know it's like, how do you hate Tom? He's this awesome New York firefighter. And the answer is, you don't hate Tom. Tom is awesome. But also to me, I was kind of like, I also couldn't really like connect with anything that Tom did in Palau that I was like, yes, Tom, awesome way to go. And it's like, he was super interesting this season for the, the, yeah. the episodes he was in, he was doing stuff. And I was like, go Tom, you do Tom. Yeah, I will back that up. And I'd be hard pressed to think that any survivor internet fan has anything in common with Tom Westman, to be honest. So it's like, <laughs> I, I, I would be the first one to tell you, I have nothing other than me being a nine 11 hero. I was a nine 11 hero, but other than that, I have nothing in common with Tom, Whoa. but I know, but I will clarify yes. what, what you just said is that, uh, yeah, when like when when Tom was voted out here, it really made me mad at the time. I just did not like it at all. But in, now that you watch it with some passing time and in retrospect, and you see the season again, I would agree with you, Jay. I really think he has a good arc here, and I think it's an yeah. excellent follow up in the manner of Ethan 2.0. So I'm I have no problem with this now. I'm just putting people in the mindset of how a lot of people felt. I wasn't the only one saying this, that a lot of people felt that way at the time they viewed this. They're like, man, that sucked. Tom never even had a chance. No, but. He did. I think he did as much as he possibly could. Yep. How about you, Paul? Did you have a lot in common with Tom? Yeah, he definitely is who I will be in about ten years. Um, <laughs> no, I mean I I uh, I, I can see the the both sides of the argument. I think the setup of the All Star season is it's always going to leave to these unfortunate pre merge boots that don't really get that were some somewhat of a legend in their original seasons. And it's just by nature, because there's so many of them in the mix, that they're going to fail and it's going to be kind of depressing. So I think anytime you watch an all-star season, you kind of have to just suck it up and get through these ones that are just kind of like, oh, it's kind of a bummer. Like Even, even if you don't love Tom to be like, okay, well, he was a pretty legendary winner. Um, you just kind of have to bite your tongue, get through it, and move on because it's just the nature of the beast. And so we've gone through the first five episodes of the season. And it's funny when people think back to Heroes versus Villains. They tend not to remember those first five episodes. It's everything starting now until the end is the stuff that people tend to remember. And this next one, we get Boston Rob against Russell. We get banana etiquette. There's a lot going on in this next one. It's a double boot episode. But there's something I have to bring up, and this is where I always get in trouble. I will say, when we did Micro, our podcast on Micro, I repeatedly pointed out how Jeff Probst would lie to the people in his previously on segments just to build up people and make them bigger characters. And there's one particular character named Parvati that he loved to do that for, where he would intentionally shoehorn her into the narrative just to make you root for her. And boy, does he do it right here. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yep. 
Jeff Probst has not changed. Again, starting in around micro, he starts getting really futzy with his previous eons where he's just inserting stuff randomly that's not even true just because he wants to drive how you watch it. And here we go. This is Jeff Probst's previously on segment at the start of episode six, Banana Etiquette. He says, right now, or if there's one thing that's been happening through the first five episodes of Heroes versus Villains, it's that the two tribes hate each other. They're at all-out war. Meanwhile, the biggest story of the game is Parvati. I'm like, what? That's not even close to the biggest story of the season. That's nothing to do with anything we've seen so far this season. But he flat out tells you right there, the biggest story of the season so far is Parvati. So I just want to throw that out there that he's doing it again. They make such interesting editing choices with the previously on and the next time on this season. And I'll admit, I'm, I understand what you're talking about with Jeff arguably editorializing a lot of this stuff as opposed to the this is what directly happened on the previous episode. He's more so now creating a narrative of like, this is what all this builds up to in this moment. But they've been doing some really interesting things. Like there's going to be one next time on where you mentioned Ian before they go through all the quote unquote dumbest decisions in survivor history to foreshadow the letter. Uh, They're going to have, you know, a next time on where it's just all the villains talking shit about each other. I I can't say I'm too mad at the choices they make there, but to your point, I do agree that if if they want to push a specific easy narrative that might not necessarily be cogent to what's actually we're actually watching week in and week out then yeah it's been pretty apparent this season yeah and it's gonna get worse that's not the only time it's just one that really jumped out at me and because like what storyline has she had so far that she was in danger at one vote like that's like her whole storyline they're like they, and he says the biggest story is poverty and then also boston rob and russell are battling for supremacy which i'm like that's every scene we in this season we've seen so far as Boston, Rob, and Russell, and they're the second story behind Parvati? I don't think so. So anyway, just pointing that out to people who uh, – I always like to point out how Jeff Probst influences the way you watch the show, and he starts doing it in season 16, and it gets really apparent in these 20 seasons. All right, so so uh, Tom has been voted out, and uh, we go – let's see. The, the fallout from that is Amanda is mad at Candace because Candace was trying to get out James instead of Tom. Amanda and Candace are kind of on the outs for a little bit here. And this is where we get the big lead up to this season or this this episode in particular. Yeah, you can say where, this season. <laughs> yeah, this okay. Where Boston, Rob, and Russell have a little powwow at night. They're kind of pull each other aside and they're like, you know, let's have a truce. We've been at each other's throats since the start. And Boston Rob kind of talks down to him, like, you know, people don't like that you look for idols. Like you're not really playing well. And Russell doesn't like people talking down to him. He's like, Well, you better watch your back. And so it starts as a truce, and it basically ends as a, like a dick measuring contest. They're just shoving each other around, saying, "I'm going to get you." No, I'm going to get you, and they will lead into this episode here. I was surprised by that turn of events. <laughs> yeah, shocking. The number two storyline behind poverty. Yeah, see, that's the interesting thing is that you know Jeff is even going to say it in another previous line of like Rob proved himself to be he transformed it from a villain into a hero. But he still has these assholeish qualities to him, and I do, and I do believe that the way he treated Russell, and I think part of it might be that he hasn't seen his season, and so, and he's also playing a very different way than Rob is used to. Rob is sort of from he did play cutthroat in All Stars, but he still has this mentality of like if you're running around squirreling looking for idols and not interacting with people, like what the hell are you doing? So, I do feel like I agree that he does talk down to Russell both physically and verbally, uh, and it's not exactly helping the case but again i guess he's also coming from the place where he's like oh yeah this is a slam dunk vote it's obviously six against three at this point uh but he doesn't necessarily realize what's to come yeah well said i would say you have you have two villains here throwing their weight around there's no none of this hero crap yet 
But uh, yeah, so we're going to go to uh, the first challenge after Tom has been voted out. And we go back to the heroes camp and there's a tree mail. They get tree mail. And this is where Rupert says, yay, like a couple more times. <laughs> so, did, 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 the, did the string get broke on the Rupert doll, like along with his toe that he just keeps repeating yay and nobody can turn him off? There's a snake in my boot. <laughs> or a lizard. <laughs> the Woody. <laughs> So, so they're getting ready for the challenge, and Colby tells us, rightfully, he's like, you know, we might not do well in these challenges with James, considering he can't walk. And so that's going to be the, the storyline of this episode. And there's a nice little foreshadowing moment as the heroes are walking off to their reward challenge, where James grabs a banana from these, they have, they have the banana's whole, uh, what are they, drop down, hanging down from their tribe flag. And as they're walking off to the challenge, you just see James in the background grabbing a banana, which is a nice little editor's touch. Yeah, moving on to this challenge. Now, Paul, I was trying to figure this out, and I don't know if you could fact check. So we've had double tribal council challenges before, but I can't remember if we've had versions where it's tribes compete on their own, and then the winners face off against each other for a reward. Because I know they're going to do it next season, too, but had they ever done that before with these double tribal council challenges? Um, I don't think so. I think this was the the first one where you have two people walking away with immunity on both sides, um, because typically I think what we've had in the past is the the winning tribe gets the shot at immunity, right? Yeah, usually, yeah, because that was like the, uh, you know, the giving the who was it? Bra- no, it wasn't Brady. Maybe uh, it was Brady. Jay John. No, it was. Um... No, yeah, John John Kenny and Vanuatu. It was yes, Ray, yeah, it was Ray, yeah, Rafe in Guatemala. So like, yeah, it usually has the ability to like do something funky with immunity on the other tribe. Yes. Which is a long way of saying this challenge is not very interesting. It goes on a long time. <laughs> so but I'm it's gonna for skim hot dogs. The, I know it's for hot dogs. I'll skim through it. I know it's a uh, delicacy in Montana, but we'll get to the hot dog challenge here. So, so it's a ropes course and everyone has to weave their way through the ropes and like do this obstacle thing. And Jeff says, both tribes are going to tribal council tonight. So this is an immunity. This is not really an immunity challenge. It's more of a reward challenge. It's individual immunity and whoever wins gets an individual. It's, it's one of these convoluted things. And to make a long story short, James does not do well, surprisingly, in his obstacle course. And Candace wins for the heroes. So Candace wins immunity for the heroes. And Boston Rob wins immunity for the villains. And then they, Candace and Boston Rob square off to see which tribe will get to eat hot dogs with all the fixins and soft drinks at Tribal Council as they watch the other tribes' Tribal Council. And Boston Rob wins, so the villains will be eating hot dogs tonight. And did I miss anything? I think that's, I believe that's the whole thing. That is literally it. Yeah, the, I mean, the only other thing is you said James did not do well, but Colby did worse. And that's going <laughs> yeah. to weigh heavily on the minds of the heroes as they decide what to do. Okay, yeah. So, again, there's a lot of uh, filler at the start of this episode because we backload all the good stuff at the end here. So the villains now go back to their camp. They know that Boston Rob is going to be immune tonight, and that kind of foils Russell's plan because he was trying to put together a coup d'etat against uh, Boston Rob. And this is where, once again, Coach is in the middle, and Coach tells us, he's like, you know, so I, I gave my my word to Rob, and it's it's physically I'm physically unable due to the gypsy's curse to break this loyalty. So I will vote for poverty tonight. I have a man of my word. I will 100% vote for poverty tonight, which will be a great dull moment later in the uh, editing. Yeah, and and this is where uh, we have another dick measuring contest between Rob and Russell. Where Rob's like, hey, you know, you got to get your idol, and Russell's like, I don't have the idol. And then this is where Rob tells Russell. Uh, it's better to play with me than against me, which Russell will not only use against him, but also co-opt as his own catchphrase and use <laughs> incessantly after Rob is gone. 
I had forgotten that was Rob's catchphrase. Like I knew that was Russell's catchphrase until this last viewing. It didn't even cross my mind. That was Rob's that Russell just took and repurposed. <laughs> so anyway, I guess I'm stupid. Yeah, I'm sure you guys all knew that. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, they're just having their little dick measuring contest. And Rob keeps telling Russell, get your idol out. You're doomed tonight. And Russell knows he's kind of screwed, I believe. And he's like, you know, I will, I only have one player here. I'll get them to try to not vote for me because I have the idol. And he goes, I'm going to give my vote to my idol to Parvati and at least save her. Then maybe she has a chance because again, she is the biggest storyline in the game right now. So that's it for the villains. And now let's go over to the heroes for a, some would say a very amusing scene. Some would say a sad scene. This is the Superman in a fat suit scene. Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, again, say what you want to about asshole James, but James provides fantastic sound bites. Uh, you know, calling Colby the great Colby, uh, calling him old sleepy ass Colby, and then we we know about Superman in a fat suit, but he says uh, he's been brought nearly brought to tears by Colby, and he says my Superman sucks, which I'm assuming everyone has said about basically the past ten years of Superman. Yeah, although I should point out another great editor moment as the heroes walk back back into camp. The first thing you see is James grabbing a banana before they talk. Now, I'm curious, um, Jay and Paul, what do you guys think of the uh, legend of Colby and Superman in a fat suit here? Super uplifting, exciting, a great way to see our hero from Survivor 2. I don't know. I'm just curious. To me, it's it's less about – I mean, I don't know if I mentioned this on the 85 podcasts we've had about heroes versus villains before this, and we're only on episode six. Hello, historians. Whoop, whoop. But – I think Colby mentioned in an interview because you could see him um, and even later on, you know, he's, he does, you know, he's, he's a fit guy, even for his age and whatnot. He uh, likes to do exercise and all that sort of stuff. And there's shots of him and Danielle, I think later on, like running or jogging in the morning. And Colby mentioned, I believe in an interview somewhere that like back in the days, like back in, you know, survivor Australian outback, like you could literally wander miles away from your camp if you wanted to, and then come back from your camp. But on Heroes versus Villains, they basically the producers restricted where they could go on the beaches, right? So like they're trying to do like a big long run in the morning, and like they get to a place, and the producers are like you can't go any further. And so Colby sort of had this just depression, I think, not not uh, you know um, some sort of like actual more mental depression, but just he was super bummed when he was out there on the island because. He couldn't do anything. It was literally you're just stuck on this beach and you can't go very far. You can't explore. You can't do a lot of the things that I think Colby liked about just doing things on Survivor. And so I think that a lot of times performance does deal with just how you're mentally, you know, feeling in that moment. And just it's very clear that Colby is just not enjoying himself, not having a good time, not super motivated for anything. And so, you know, they can sit here and talk about Superman in a fat suit all they want to. And, you know, yeah, he, you know, age happens and he lost a step. But it's also I just think the drive and desire just isn't there. Yeah, that's one thing. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking back to Australian Outback. And that's a lot of scenes in Colby back then were him just wanting to get away from camp and go to retreat somewhere and just kind of meditate and be by himself. And then Jerry would usually follow him, which was the fun part. But yeah, that was that's that was his old MO back, even back then. He just needed time to get away and recharge. And there's almost no chance to do that in a modern survivor type setup where everyone's right on top of each other. So I I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and this is also, you know, I also feel like maybe he and Tom were in the same situation in that they knew they were pretty much screwed from the beginning and didn't stand a chance of making it far. Colby ends up defying that, but I wonder if it just depends on the attitude you cop as well, whereas if you have people like Tom and Ethan more so be feisty in response to it, 
Colby's maybe more so despondent. Like, even when they get back to camp, he pretty much says, like, look, guys, I know I'm going. Let's not, you know, do any sort of shifting around. It's totally fine. I respect y'all's vote. And then that's it. And then, unfortunately, insult is added to injury where the injured man tells him how bad he is. But, yeah, it just seems like at this point, he sort of is believing the words against him where I don't think he's been hugely terrible in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I think that maybe there was just so much hype built in for him. I mean, still, he still is one of the challenge record holders for individual wins. Uh, and maybe just the hype was too great that now people are like, Oh, you're just an average person now. Whereas if he had started average, he'd sort of just be part of the course. Well, yeah. And age is a factor, right? Like he, he, you know, even though he's still in great shape as you can see and, and, all of these sort of things, you know, as you age, you're just going to lose a step naturally, right? But the challenges are different. And I think that also just the way the challenges are presented and the way people just train up for Survivor, I think, are just different. Like people train for certain things because the challenges do differ from season to season, but there is a, a an amount of similarity to them, right? So there is nowadays a thing that people can train for Survivor. And I think people did. And I just don't think that Colby really put that much effort into Survivor training and just he was just probably doing his own normal thing. And it's like back in the day, it's kind of like you know, when people say that, you know, today's modern baseball players are stronger and can hit the ball farther than, you know, Babe Ruth's era and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, for the most part, that's true. But it's like in Babe Ruth's era, they didn't like they had other jobs when they weren't playing baseball and they didn't do a lot of like uh, extensive weight training. And it's like now they do CrossFit and they do all of this, you know, just intense like their job is basically to make their bodies as peak conditioned as they possibly could. And so sports has just changed. Yeah, of course they're stronger. Of course they're faster. And I think that sometimes this this little bit of, you know, Survivor is not, you know, athleticism in that sense. But the game is now an established thing. It's now a thing where people, when they want to go on, they train for it specifically. And I think that that's something that didn't exist in Survivor 2, you know? Yeah, and there's one other thing I wanted to bring up that yeah, I'm glad you guys mentioned that because it made me think of something is that Colby just doesn't really have a fiery personality. No, yeah. and that just really doesn't, doesn't, yeah. And that, that's oh. the thing I was going to bring up as well is that, you know, that that's the difference, I think, between Colby and like a Tom Westman or even like a Boston Rob, you know, when these people come back is that, you know, Rob changes his game. But Rob has this desire to win. You what you say, what you will about Boston Rob throughout his survivor history. He has wanted to win every game that he has played. And I Wait, don't Jay, know. Can you point to one time in survivor history when Colby made a decision that was not clear that winning was the most important <laughs> thing to him? Point to one decision. Mm. I'm sure it's there. I'm, I'm sure, sure it it's Reed. there. It involved Reed at some point. Reed at some point. I will. I will explain the joke. Not all of our listeners are going to catch Paul's joke there. It's <laughs> please explain. If you that don't get it, then then end the show, please. Please unsubscribe. <laughs> Colby delete chose Tina this over to, to go to the final two in Survivor Two. Okay, we explain the joke. But like, yeah, I think that you're right. Is that Colby? for the most part, winning has not been like the super most important thing to him. And I think that that matters, not not as in, you know, how I feel about the person, but I think that how you approach the game and when things go well and when things don't go well, what is your goals out there? Because, yeah. you know, you always assume that everyone's goal is to win the million dollars, but I don't necessarily think that's true. Yeah, he's he's not overly competitive. He's not super fiery. And I was going to say he almost seems like an introvert. And it's kind of weird because I know Ethan is an introvert, but there, Ethan has that extra variable Colby doesn't have that Ethan was a pro athlete. 
So like right. when Ethan gets pushed down, he fights back. You see that in All-Stars. He's fiery. And Colby, I don't think, has that because I don't think it matters that much to him. He doesn't really care. So it's like, yeah, I think that's what happens here. And you can just see it's – I think this is a sad scene to watch. But luckily, yeah. Colby will have a little bit of a renaissance later. But this is a tough scene, I think. Yeah. Though, so, you know, this is also – the big, I think, specter looming over this scene is the aforementioned banana etiquette and specifically how James did not go to banana finishing school because he's <laughs> in pure defiance of said etiquette. Yeah, I'm glad that Jay brought up Babe Ruth because it'll, it'll factor in here where someone just eats way too much food. That's what Babe Ruth did. <laughs> so James has a problem that Rupert will point out here. He's like, well, we could vote out James or Colby tonight. And all of a sudden, James is kind of on Rupert's hit list because – he eats too many bananas. No, he specifically says bananas. <laughs> yes. Like he's a freaking minion. <laughs> he eats four on the way to the challenge and three on the way back. That's too many bananas. <laughs> so, so James is now on the Lenny hit squad hit list. <laughs> that, that, so now they're wondering, maybe we don't want to keep James because he's not that athletic and he eats us out of house and home. And so this is where we get the uh, the wonderful James Olympiad scene where they make him prove that he is mobile enough and athletic enough to keep on the tribe. And Amanda, of course, pulls him aside. She's like, they're thinking about talking. They're thinking about voting you out tonight, James. He's like, why? And she's like, well, you eat too many bananas. There's like an etiquette. And he's like, what? And so she has to explain to him, when you get a banana, James, you first ask every other person if they'd like one. And he's like, what? I've never heard of that. <laughs> It's a very funny Rob Zabachnik was also getting really fired up about this. Yes. <laughs> Bananas have led to so much conflict in Survivor history. It's crazy. So we assume this was a Rupert edict, right? That this was entirely his idea of how to run the camp? 100%. Yeah. Too bad Karen wasn't there to kind of dictate it as well, but it was all Rupert. Well, she could go along with it. She's a very good actress. <laughs> yes. So, so this is where the heroes start talking about who should we vote out tonight. And Amanda is like, don't vote out James. James is, is very helpful. And everyone else is like, nah, screw James. He eats all our bananas. So, again, we get the race scene where JT has to race James, that they're going to make James prove that he knows how to run. <laughs> and they put him up against the fastest guy in the tribe, which is probably not the most optimal way. Again, he should have raced Amanda, like you said. It would have been far more fair. And James does not run well. He gets dusted. He cannot to not prove that he can run. He just doesn't move quickly. And he's not very mobile. And he, he pulls up Gimpy at the end. So it's a very kind of a telling scene of exactly what he can bring to the tribe. Although, God bless the Survivor editors for doing my job for me and writing comedy for me. Is that as we finish the scene, as James has lost the race, they fade out. And you just hear James say, hey, JT, would you like a banana? I love that. It's a perfect capper to that scene. He learned his lesson. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a ridiculous idea. The fact that they had to hold a race at their camp, they had to hold their own challenge to determine whether or not they should keep James is just an absolutely ridiculous idea. And, I mean, actually, I, I don't know. Maybe this is, like, completely headcanon, but I wonder if JT was, the, was one of the people that was really pushing to get rid of James. Do you think he purposely volunteered to race against him knowing he was the fastest person in the tribe because there is a part where like you know Rupert's like oh maybe I should race him and JT's like no I got this and I wonder if he purposely wanted to do it to dust James and show everybody like see he can't even run let's vote him off it could be I don't know the back history but yeah I'd say I'm sure there was some very strong opinions on whether James should be allowed to do that although I gotta point something out here I I'm not Steve Prefontaine I'm not like a pro runner 
But isn't running on wet sand probably not ideal condition, conditions for a person with a bad knee? It seems like that would be very strenuous on your knees. What what running is conducive for a, a bad knee? <laughs> That's an excellent point. Good point, Jay. Oh, let, let's run on a flat surface. That's also good for having a gimpy knee. Like, none of it's good. Running on a trampoline, maybe? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the point is because wherever they're going to be running, they're going to be running on you know, some sort of unstable terrain. And so you can say, well, is wet sand bad? It's like, okay, dry sand's not much better or, you know, the woods, like they're, wherever they run, the fact that they were running, like if JT was halfway in the water and James was on the, the shore, you can talk about like different things, but you know, they were running on the same surface, you know, I think the point is made, but I also think that, you know, just the whole, Hey, let's have a race. Like that's clearly a tribe of people where no one wants to like openly assert dominance in like yeah. the most over kind of way. It's just kind of this group think is what that is. It, I agree with that. It does make me realize though, if Yao man had been there, he would have invented some kind of zero gravity thing where James could have run and been him good for his knee. So it's, we, we missed out not having Yao man here. Hit your cast on the corner. What are they trying to crack open his knee like a clamshell? <laughs> I mean, th there's there's kind of a clamshell etiquette when you think about it. <laughs> Before you rip open the clamshell, you have to offer it to all the other yep. clams. Like, do you want to cast, JT? Do you want to cast, Amanda? Wait a minute. I should point out earlier in the season, Randy Bailey specifically did clam etiquette, and he was scoffed at for it. That's why they're villains. <laughs> That's right. Courtney, looking right at you with your eye rolls. All right. So we're going to the villains camp here, and now this is the very convoluted storytelling on this episode and it's going to be very complex here how we explain this vote here i will do my best and you guys can pipe in where there are six people on rob's side and there are three people on russell's side russell's got him parvati and danielle and basically they're like russell's gonna put all his three votes on one person they're like it's probably going to be tyson because boston rob is immune tyson's the second in command that makes sense so we have to split our votes and these are my least favorite scenes in Survivor. We go over split details where we're going to do three votes on who on Russell and three votes on Parvati. And whoever plays the idol, the other one will go home because we get to do the revote. So this is where it's all set up. It should all be perfect. It's three against three against three. And it starts getting complicated here where – and this is the scene that will gall me to no end because this is the one Russell fans always love to point to. Russell decides I'm going to pull – Tyson aside, I'm going to go talk to him and I'm going to go put a seed in his head that maybe we should all vote for poverty tonight. And, and all sorts of fun is going to ensue from here on out, starting including or starting with, and I should point out, a big eye roll or a, a, like a look to the camera as Courtney looks right at the camera when Russell comes over to talk to Tyson. She's like, uh oh, watch out. So before we get to that, just quickly on the three through three vote, because I do feel like I don't know. I feel like Boston Rob ends up creating this. Again, ironically enough, Mr. Like, I don't know how to play with idols is able to figure this out. But this is also like a big benchmark for modern Survivor with these vote splits. The point where this is what they're going to use to actually get Russell out in season 22. They're actually going to be able to pull off what the villains don't and do a 3-3-3 tie. And it's a great idea that he comes up with. And it would have been a great idea if they follow it. I'm sure we all have thoughts as to... How, in terms of what Tyson does, what percentage of it do you think was Tyson just doing this on his own volition, just to throw an extra vote Parvati's way, and what percent was legitimately Russell convincing him, hey, I'm I'm gonna give up and throw my vote onto Parvati, so Tyson thought that okay, we don't need to split the votes anymore. It it would be really nice to know if Tyson <laughs> were talking to the cameras. 
Yeah, it's a uh, this that's a million dollar question you just asked there, Mike, because all we see is Russell's side of it. We never hear Tyson's opinion, although you do hear Tyson's opinion in his final words and after the season, and they are quite different from the image that's presented to us in the episode. Right. And then just so people know, Tyson has admitted um, afterwards, you know, his strategy was the, the Danny Boatwright kind of strategy in the sense that he came into Heroes versus Villains and he didn't talk strategy in confessionals very much with uh, the camera people because he, you know, he sort of noticed that even even when you talk and you're in theory by yourself, some of the questions they would ask or if you would start saying something, then, you know, people would you scuttlebutt would happen because if you revealed something in your confessional, maybe they wouldn't reveal it directly to another person in confessional, but then they'd ask them leading questions sort of about subjects that you've discussed. So Tyson was basically like, I want my strategy to not be out there at all for anyone ever. So he was basically like, I'm going to say nothing. And I mean, you can talk about how well it works versus how well it didn't work, but we don't know what Tyson totally is thinking here because he's not telling us. The one thing I was able to find was a secret confessional where Tyson said that in addition to Russell saying that he was going to vote for Parvati, he in turn expected that Danielle and Parvati were going to vote for Russell. I think he was legitimately surprised to see his name come up from that trio because he assumed they were voting for each other. And I think that was the big reason why he wanted to vote Parvati. He said he wanted to vote for Parvati to quote-unquote look smart. I think he was not a big fan of having to split on the person that was assumingly playing the idol. So... I wonder if it is mostly, like, I guess it wouldn't say it's, it's directly Russell saying he's voting for Parvati, but it more so represents the idea that Tyson, for some reason, just thought that this trio just wouldn't stick together and would instinctively vote for each other, which means he doesn't have to stick with the 3-3 split that Rob, you know, commanded. Yeah, if you, specifically, I watched Tyson's final words. On the DVD, they have his whole extended final words. And in nowhere in there does it say, oh, Russell tricked me or they tricked me. His whole thing is, damn it, I outsmarted myself. I tried to do something tricky and I didn't tell anybody and I got nailed for it. So that's that was his uh, – that's what he thought happened to him. He's like, yeah, we had this great plan. I decided to go rogue at the last minute because I thought I could influence the vote and sneak around this vote split and get poverty out anyway because I, I don't want to deal with a vote split. So Tyson has always said, I got myself voted out. It's something dumb. I outsmarted myself. And you'll hear a lot of people say that Tyson voted himself out in Heroes versus Villains. That's my stance I tend to go with, although I will fully admit a lot of it's skewed because I just don't like Russell. But it is, it is never I've never liked the way it's presented in this episode is the very last thing you see is Russell saying, hey, Tyson, vote for Parvati. And then we immediately cut to what was probably 10 hours later or something. I don't know how long, how much further it was in the future where Tyson votes for Parvati. But we don't know what happened in the middle there. And the way it's presented is it's 100% Russell gets credit for it, and that drove me crazy at the time. I tried to uh, – I didn't watch his extended final words. I was listening, listening to the day after, hoping to get some more insight. But, no, he just was bashing on Danielle, said he could not um, yeah. relate to her because she he didn't want to talk about Barbies and bad boob jobs. <laughs> Woof. Well, hopefully Danielle isn't talking about that. Because uh, that would be, I mean, we could we could definitely get into Danielle's edit as well down the line. Because that is just if we're talking about other under the radar players. Uh, I mean, the other interesting thing is I do think that Russell's statement played a little part, but he does sort of like back up into a good move because he says like, "Hey, you know what? Like, it'd be a genius move if they split the votes on us three three three, but I don't think that they're smart enough to do that." So 
you know, we'll talk about him playing the idol on Parvati, but I think he legitimately did not think that they would do what they ended or what they tried to end up doing. And he just happened to sort of get lucky that they attempted it, but it happened to get stymied by something else he did. Yeah. And unfortunately, this is the reality. You cannot talk about this episode without taking a pro-Russell stance or anti-Russell stance. Did he Was he 100% responsible for this because he's amazing, or did he just get lucky and it happened to work out? And I, I've always felt a little bad that you can't really talk about this scene objectively without taking a side. So I apologize to the people that we're going to piss off because some people think this is a, Russell's most amazing move ever, ever. There's some people who think he had nothing to do with it. I have no idea. None of us really know. We just know what's presented in the episode, what people said afterwards. But this is a very dicey scene to talk about because you you were you are forced to reveal your biases, unfortunately. Well, but not only that, but you have to you have to realize that Tyson switching his vote over to Parvati is ultimately what makes Russell succeed because you know, as Mike pointed out, Boston Rob has figured out the vote split and how to get around an idol and if they had just done it, if they had just put three votes on Parvati and three votes on Russell, they would have had a tie. And at this point, since Russell gave his idol to Parvati, Russell would have been voted out. So you can't you can't sit here and say like the thing is, is that Russell didn't like outfox the the intent of the move. The intent of the move and the intent of the split is gonna get him. Like it's 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 an inevitability. They have outsmarted the 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 giving the, or the playing the idol you have you have enough votes that you can split votes and then get out another person in the alliance and then maintain a numbers advantage what gets russell the win here is the fact that tyson throws his vote onto parvati so then instead of a 333 it becomes uh, a 432 with the four being negated and so that's why this becomes such a polarizing move because tyson switches his vote we are presented on television with russell saying tyson maybe you should vote for poverty so the question is do you believe that russell convinced tyson or it did tyson just do something tyson-y mm. i'm gonna i'm gonna make a hot take here i think i think what russell does next episode is more impressive than the tyson stuff just because oh, i agree yeah Absolutely. Yeah, there's more culpability, I think, on Tyson and this stuff, and definitely more questionable aspects, as you spoke about, Jay. But I do, I really do feel like next episode, and I think it's due in part to voting out Tyson, who is such a key cog in that majority alliance. But he's still down, you know, five to three, and he's able to turn everyone pretty much against Rob next episode, which I think is very commendable. I was going to say, 100% give Russell credit for the next episode. He's very good the next episode. But here's something I'm going to... Uh, give Russell credit for. And it's something that uh, I think that people, if they ever want to play Survivor. Now, I know that people do this and we don't necessarily see it all the time because it's not in the edit. But especially in earlier seasons of Survivor, when somebody just sees that they're at the wrong end of votes and they're probably going to get voted out. Yeah, you know, they say they tried to, you know, convince people to switch votes the other way. But, you know, how hard are they trying is really the question. And I will give this about Russell. He never stops fighting. Oh, 100%. Yeah, no, I agree. He he will never just give up. Although, I will say, there was the rumor or the storyline at the time, and I don't remember where this came from. I feel bad I should have researched this a little better, where, I don't know if it was Tyson or one of the heroes said, that wasn't Russell doing anything amazing. That was Russell giving up. He's like, I'm toast, and like I kind of have a big boy crush on Parvati. I'll just give, him my, give her my idol so she's safe, and I'll go home and peace out. And that's, he, like, he kind of knew he was done. Well, that's, I know, that's I know what... that came up in a couple interviews. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing, right, is is that, you know, as as Mike said, he backs into this brilliant move because he didn't necessarily know that they're going to throw that vote onto Parvati. 
in a weird way. And if they had voted three votes Russell and three votes Parvati and he plays the idol and he plays it on himself, then Parvati is the one that goes home, right? Like in no sense, like does he, you know, and everyone's like, oh, it was brilliant because he told Tyson to vote for Parvati and then there were four votes Parvati and then he gave her the idol so then he knew where the votes were going and then he put the idol there. But I think that, you know, it's it's very plausible to look at it and go, Russell as a last gasp, for something for television, gave his idol to Parvati, but then Tyson did the rogue vote and it all worked out super amazingly well. So you can look at it both ways, but either way, a win's a win, and this is a win. Yeah, yeah. I would I would say that I think, again, if I'm putting myself in Russell's head, which is scary, I personally think at that moment, he thinks it's going to be six votes Parvati, three votes Tyson. He doesn't think he's in any danger. He's going to play the idol on Parvati, She's gonna. Their votes are gonna be the only ones that matter, and they get rid of Tyson. I don't know if he was expecting his name to to come up and that split to happen. Yeah, and I should point out there's another variable here too that Tyson does not hold his teammates in the highest of esteem. I can fully see him thinking my allies are morons. They're gonna screw this up, and I'll just take it in matters of my own hands, and I'll take care of this vote. I'll, I got mm-hmm. it, guys. Don't like. I can kind of see Tyson not really trusting people to do smart things. And to your point. Uh... I think it was was it Mario or was it Mike, one of you who said that, you know, Tyson wanted to vote for Parvati because he thought, you know, Parvati was going to be the one that was going to go home, you know, and you wanted to be on the right side. It sort of brings up the whole when you do vote splits, because a lot of times, you know, when when it seems always, at least it seems that way, like on TV, when you're like, we're going to split the votes, we're going to put three votes on this person, three votes on this person, and this is how it's going to go. You know, who's voting for whom? Well, it doesn't matter. Just you three vote for this person, you three vote for this person, but it's like, it kind of matters maybe to some people. So like if someone's like, I really want to be the one to vote for this person, you sort of have to take that into account. Whereas maybe Tyson spoke up about it, maybe he didn't, but he felt very strongly that he should be voting for Parvati. And it's like, those are things where if you're in the game and you're going to do a vote split, maybe you need to take who people want to vote for in the split to account. Yeah, I know that uh, a lot of Survivor players, even though there's a plethora of idol splits nowadays, understandable considering how many idols are in the game nowadays, I believe it's Stephen Fishback said that arranging an idol split is just one of the most complicated, arduous things to do. Especially even with a, a number you know as small as six, you just have to divide it three, three. There's a lot of who's going to vote who. To your point, Jay, who wants to vote for who? So I can imagine it's it's really like trying to arrange like some really intricate seats at a wedding where nobody's really that mad at each other and they're able to maintain sanity for a little bit until the first dance happens. I think it's a thing that people do not take into account, even though they know it's there. And I'm not saying that people are um, not smart when they, when they are looking at survivor, I further from the truth, but it's something it's, it's, it's a thing that we have a concept of, but that we can't put into account. And that is just how much you have to accommodate for what people think and feel Towards certain things because we just sit here on our armchair and we say, well, they just need to do a vote split. They just three of them need to vote for this person, three of them need to vote for this person. But like you said, Mike, and what Stephen Fishback said, people have opinions on which person they're going to vote for in the split. And it's no longer just, okay, well, you three vote for this and you three vote for this and it's fine. It's like, it's not that simple. It's never that simple. And I think that, you know, I can't even comprehend how hard it is to just deal with everyone's ego and personality out there, even for things that just seem very straightforward. 
Yeah, let's see. So to sum up for people, Tyson gets voted out because the vote split goes awry. Russell has given his idol to Parvati, who plays it at the vote, who gets saved. And this will become later. This will come up later. Very importantly, the next season. Wow. Wow. How gallant it was and how amazing that Russell had that loyalty to Parvati. Like, I maybe I should trust that guy. He seems pretty cool. So what, what else happens here is that we get a nice little... This is, I think, the the first really big run of Sandra just crapping on Russell because she hates him so much. Where she says to Tribal Council, you best go get your idol. Or if you don't have the idol, you best look for it, point blank. And then she, like, laughs at him at one point. And then when she votes for Russell, Sandra utters the immortal words, uh, get in the ocean and wash your ass. I can't stand you. <laughs> so <laughs> this will have a nice payoff later in the season. Sandra is not a fan of Russell. You don't think so? No, but again, there's nothing that led to the legend. And again, the Russell hands had the biggest legend of anybody I've ever seen in survivor history, probably. And I would say this scene, the way the editors presented it led to that more than anything else where they specifically say, Russell says, Hey, Tyson, you should vote for poverty. Then cut forward. Russell Tyson votes for poverty. And in the next episode, Jeff will reinforce that in his previously on where he says, Russell planted a seed in Tyson's head, and it caused him to vote for poverty. Where Jeff will cement that. So I just want—I just want to end. I will end on one more thing. Isn't it amazing? Poverty's amazing storyline, how it continues to dominate the whole season. <laughs> I will say, I'm—I uh, will say, I think Russell is, has a lot of fun with dramatics when it comes to playing his idols, uh, because this is the one where he says, you know, I think I'm going to take the target off my back, and then he steals himself when he comes to Jeff and he says, no, not this way, and then plays it on Parvati. Uh, I do wonder how much Parvati knew it was going to happen, if the are you serious was her attempt at acting as well. But, you know, for the myriad times we're going to see Russell play an idol, I will give it to him that he at least tries to make as entertaining an outcome as possible with the number of times he does do it. Yeah, and I will say again in his defense, I don't defend Russell much, but he specifically says here he's going to do it that way. That's the way he presents his idol, gives it to Parvati because it's not, I mean, it's partially to save himself, partially to save Parvati, but he even says, I'm doing this because I want to show my loyalty and honor and my integrity to somebody else on this on this tribe yeah. who may appreciate that. <laughs> so a lot of this was a big show for Coach. So there's some long-term thinking here, which I have to give. I give Russell credit for that very much because he's very much thinking, how can I influence coach to flip sides in the future yeah i mean you can assume that the gypsy's words then came into his head and his <laughs> his arms were manipulated then and coach just became suddenly possessed for the next episode <laughs> coach is a golem now they just control him <laughs> <laughs> so anything else to say about tyson or this vote because this is a big one i don't want to make sure everybody gets their words in here i i just remember for me this was like a a very defining moment for me as a fan because it was the first time that i that i that i can recall it happening and then me not fully getting what happened. Like it right. took, like it took some time. I, I remember being at my friend's dorm watching it and it happening and we're being like, wait, what? And we like had to talk it out and really think about it because it was not clear. And obviously I think from this point on, then Survivor loves to do that. Like they love now to really try to really mess with you. And so you don't have an idea of, well, how could that even work with the numbers? So for me, this was very monumental in the first time that, the game and the voting and the idols got so complicated that it was not once you got the result, it was not clear always what happened. I would also say that I think that 
Tyson is probably the first of our under-edited players this season, which is, we talked about this, I think, in part one, whenever that was, which was, you know, it's a little sad considering that he was such a funny presence, such a big character in Token Chains, that to see him, you know, just reduced to, like, this is his one big moment in the season. This and him lecturing Coach. And considering that half of his big screen time is devoted to him making a, a boneheaded move is not very good. So I am happy that Tyson was able to come back for a third time. And as you've uh, shown in the funny one Team Mario, he still do- is Tyson, even though he is strategically a lot different than he was his first two times out. But yeah, it was weird to see him go, you know, not only because of what Paul said, but also because I'm like, no, but like this Tyson did not feel like Tyson this season, even though he does go out saying, you know, uh, I-, I still, uh, you know, I'm still the best, uh, you know, I-, I still kick butt. It just didn't feel like we really did have Tyson on the season of Survivor. Yeah. I will I will say one thing. I will admit this. My first instinct when this episode aired, and I will not – I do not believe this now. This is totally just in the heat of the moment, Mario being pissed, is that I remember all the talk about Samoa being rigged for Russell and how he was getting handed idols, and all the Samoa players were talking about that. And I remember this vote in particular. And I'm like, that was so rigged. Um, are you kidding me? That was a foolproof 6-3, yet somehow Russell escapes with some weird idol play. I'm like, who's telling Russell who to vote for? So that was my first instinct at the time. I just remember thinking, this is so crappily rigged. I hate it. But again, I don't think that anymore. I just think everyone outsmarted themselves. But man, in the heat of the moment, if you didn't like Russell already, this was like, oh my God, I cannot believe he, he survived this one. Yeah, it is pretty crazy that in another universe, we could have lost Russell in episode six of Survivor Heroes versus Villains. And I would, I could only imagine what like this Survivor universe and specifically the discourse in the early 2010s would have looked like had that happened. What, what does Samoa look like? I know. Well, who's JT going to write his letter to? Now it's crazy. Coach? <laughs> oh, no. Well, I think Coach would actually go along with it. <laughs> Yeah, that's a fun universe. Yeah, Russell goes here, and then Parvati goes right after. That's 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 where that would have gone. Yeah, and then and then I think you could legitimately look at Boston Rob winning one time earlier than he actually does. Yeah, no, that's that's a fun uh, debate question. <laughs> All right, we're gonna move on, but I want Jay. I just want to get your your initial thoughts when you saw this episode for the first time, because I I'm not you know this isn't hyperbole. This might be the single biggest episode or biggest moment in Survivor history, to be honest. It's huge. I mean, you you know, we, we've talked on this podcast about, you know, episodes that we think are very important or landmark episodes or just I've, I've talked a lot about what just episodes that I think are just beautiful pieces of television. Right. Um, ones that are structured very well. I don't necessarily think that that banana etiquette is uh, the most well structured episode of Survivor, but it might be one of the most important or most action packed or the most you know, things that happen in the episode that we remember from from then on. I mean, just the fact that Russell got this vote or or didn't get, but just the fact that the vote went his way here uh, and Rob lost this showdown with him and Russell. I mean, I was floored when it happened, just absolutely flabbergasted, uh, maybe because I've always kind of liked Boston Rob. And so I'm going to root for him and this Rob Russell sort of uh, a track. But, you know, this is early into Russell's uh, sort of reign here. And so we're sort of led to believe that Russell's a savvy player. So it was kind of fun to see like, you know, you know, our dude Rob go up against this new, you know, uh, a beast in Russell. And I can't believe that Russell came out on top. And I was so mad at Tyson. I just was so mad at Tyson that he flipped his vote. Cause I was like, what are you doing? I just remember being so angry. Yeah. I mean, that, that was 
the majority of people that I remember seeing at the time, that was their response to this episode. Like, what just happened? Why, why did it have to work out that way? And of course, the Russell fans are just crazy going so happy that Russell escaped this vote and like maybe his greatest move ever. But yeah, this was such a polarizing moment. And yeah, it's, it's, we could spend another 30 minutes talking about it. Well, I don't want to, but we could. This was just that big a deal. I also think that we, we can't discount just how affable and how quickly we forgive and love Boston Rob. Because if we're just looking at the show, because I know Boston Rob did some you know reality TV stuff and, and all that stuff in between, and maybe people were like following his life a lot closely than I was. But for, for me, for all intents and purposes, after Survivor All-Stars and we got the Robin Amber wedding sort of stuff, like Boston Rob was just sort of a non-entity for me for a while, right? And then he comes back on Heroes versus Villains, and I was like, here's Boston Rob back. And that first sort of interaction that he has on the mat with Jeff, where Jeff is just like, Boston Rob, villain stripes, and what do you think? And Rob goes, I'm a villain? With that, like, half smile that he does, you know, just being him. It was like, I just sat there at that moment, I was just like, I love you, Boston Rob. You are the <laughs> best. I'm so glad you're on my TV. And so from that point on, you know, I'm sitting there just absolutely loving that Rob is there. And so then as as we talk about the the storyline is Rob versus Russell. And because Russell wins this, you just can't see any way that Rob is going to, like, last super far after this episode. So, like, it was sad because Russell won the, the showdown, which I didn't really like to see. But also, like, OK, well, now our time with Rob is limited. Like, he's mm -hmm. not going to the end. And so it was kind of a double sad. So he won the battle and the war. Yeah. yeah. And again, I have to point out to people that that jump between season eight and season 20, that was a long jump. It's like forever. Yeah, six, six years. Yeah. You might, you might binge watch these seasons and you think those are just back-to-back -back seasons. That was a long time not to see Boston Rob. So it was Social pretty impressive to see him back. Social media existed, right? Like, like It's not like we were in some social media black hole, but it's nothing like it is today. Yeah. And yes, Rob is was a high profile person. Like I said, he had his own reality shows since then and and whatnot. So like it's not like Rob just went into a hole for the years from Survivor All Stars and his wedding to Survivor Heroes versus Villains. But like you didn't see him much. You didn't you know, in the Survivor world, you know, on Survivor TV, like they you know, he just was not there, right? And and like you said, eight to twenty is a long time. And then he kind of came back and he just is as awesome as ever and you're just sitting there going like oh this is great this is awesome <laughs> this is where our viewers were we'll go back and listen to our all-stars podcast where we all talk about how he hated boston rob <laughs> it's like oh you know by season 20 that guy was the best <laughs> no but it legitimately is absence makes the heart grow fonder i certainly felt that way about some people coming back i was not a fan of rob by the end but him coming back i'm like Okay, because I think it's also six years had a lot of difference on him. He speaks about, you know, now being married and having a kid. I think he approached the game differently. He's sort of like the anti-Rupert in that regard. So I, it, it really is. Like, I was happy to see them come back. And summarily, when you see Rob and Russell come back one year later to, quote-unquote, settle their feud, you're like, why do we need this right now? Yeah, right. I hate, I hate Rob again. And 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 to and and to 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 jump ahead, and I know we're talking about heroes versus villains, but to talk about Redemption Island, and I believe it's the first vote because doesn't Rob go to Tribal Council first? And that, and you know, he's talking to people, and like when he comes onto that island with Omatepe, he's just, "Hi, how we doing? We're doing this thing," and he's like the nicest dude. And you know, it's sort of a carryover to s some of his personality from heroes versus villains, but you you don't expect that from Rob. You're expecting this like, you know, sarcastic competitor who's trying to stronghold everybody and all that sort of stuff and he's just hey how's it going blah 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 and then he gets to that first tribal council and i i don't know the exact quote but i know he holds up his 
his vote and he just looks at the at the screen he says y'all are a bunch of amateurs mm. and he's got that <laughs> smirk that rob smirk on his face and you're sitting there going like he never left us he's he's there he is but like he has matured and he how he deals with people has has changed and obviously it becomes a winning formula at some point he plays an absolutely perfect almost perfect game in redemption island but it's like Rob is, you know, he's he's who he is. He's the scoundrel. And we, you know, and for better or worse, it's it's a it's sort of an intoxicating personality and we do love it. <laughs> Should I point out how fitting it is that Tyson was just voted out and we're eulogizing Boston Rob? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, we forgot Tyson was on this season. <laughs> but I also don't think that that is um, wrong in a way, because no. it's not that Tyson isn't a great personality. We talked about how great Tyson was in token genes, right? And, you know, Tyson's going to come back and Tyson's going to have his moment. And the, there's all this stuff with Tyson. But, like, I think that I can speak for everyone that other than some fun little outtakes from here to there in Heroes versus Villains, Tyson is persona non grata. And it's part of because he just didn't do a lot of confessionals. Yeah. No, I agree. It's clearly a lesser presence than he was in Token Sheens, for sure. All right, we do have another half of this tribal council, which is funny. The like Jay said, it's a very memorable episode, but I don't know if it's all that structured all that well. Yeah, and again, I, I, think, I think there's I think there's a Mandela effect where people think that the villains tribal council is the one that finishes the episode. No, when really, it's the first one. you would say that the the heroes are like much like James. They sort of like are like the gimping tribe, where they're just like, okay, this is the big show, and I guess we have to, you know put this one out to pasture it's well like, if they hadn't have done the stupid eat hot dogs and watch they could have switched them around but they were kind of locked into this order because of the stupid reward it's not it a live audience it. it's not don't a live drop audience. the buns it's not a live audience but here's uh jay's reference to professional wrestling in this podcast you know it's one of those where like you know you usually have when you when you put together a wrestling professional wrestling show you have your main event last and usually you're like that's the big name guys that's the one that's going to be the the match that's going to be the best that everyone's going to remember and then two people go out there like in the middle of the show and they put on just an absolute classic match that gets everyone like into it and rocking and rolling and everyone just sort of like loses their shit over this match and then the next couple people have to go out and wrestle. And it's right. like, there's no way that crowd's going to be behind you in any way. And it's like, this is the Heroes Tribal Council. It's like, we have this absolute fireworks villain Tribal Council. And it's like, oh yeah, also there's James and a gimpy leg. <laughs> I, that totally reminds me, this is off the topic, but I, I just went to a, my son likes BattleBots, the show BattleBots. And we went to a taping of it just a couple months ago. And they have all these big, huge battles and wars. And the audience is crazy and all these because it's all the big-name battle bots. And at the end of the taping, they throw in, like, two rookies just to see if they're going to be able to make it in the circuit. So it's, like, the very last thing they tape, and it's not even shown in the episode. So it's, like, all these huge legendary battle bots. And then, now, please stick around for Squeaker against Tiny. And, like, everybody leaves. Yeah. They just walk yeah. out. <laughs> it's the nope, saddest thing. Not- not following that one. <laughs> are, those, are those the nicknames for James and Colby? Squeaker versus Tiny? Yeah, Squeaker and Tiny. So, yeah, let's go. Which one's which? <laughs> My Superman's in a Squeaker suit. <laughs> no, I, 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 feel like, I feel like Colby has to be Tiny. Yeah, especially yeah. compared to what, unless, unless you give the ironic nickname to James as Tiny. <laughs> yes. So, uh. So I, yeah, it always boggles my mind that banana etiquette is in the same episode as Boston Rob against Russell, but it is. So now we go to the Heroes Tribal Council, and 
it's really I'll just skim through this one that the villains eat hot dogs and laugh at the heroes and they just watch as it's basically Tom or uh, Colby against James Superman in a fat suit against the bully and banana etiquette comes up at tribal council and all the villains laugh that this is what the heroes are apparently concentrating on like we're over there life and death it's you know clash of the titans and over on the heroes it's about who can eat the most bananas <laughs> and so at the end of the tribal council James is voted out, but not before he pulls a Simpsons reference, a months here, where the villains are told they cannot eat any more hot dogs, and James says, ha ha ha. And also, there was a Amanda moment that I forgot about where the villains leave and Amanda goes, oh my god, there's bread up there. <laughs> what did you expect to be up there? You're, they're eating hot dogs. <laughs> yeah, I have a Montana question, Paul. How do you eat hot dogs in Montana? What do you put the hot dog between? Well, the thing is, you know, the air out here is very dry and buns dry up very fast. So maybe, you know, if you're used to living in a high elevation like this, you just don't, you do without the bread. But it'd be like equivalent to be like, oh my God, they're eating hot dogs. Wait. Oh my God! There's ketchup. Wait yeah, a minute. Exactly. Wait, you're like... missing the obvious <laughs> reference here. Oh my God! There's bacon on this BLT. Yes, exactly. Amanda pre-catted it. Yes. So, a wonderful Amanda moment. Are you very? Were you proud of her in that moment, Paul? M O N T A N A, Montana. I love you. <laughs> so, so I now I have song. this. So now I have this vision of like people in Montana sitting by their cotton gins, eating a hot dog off of one of those like comical sticks that kind of has the two prongs that come up through the hot dog we don't so, eat bread with our hot dogs that's the devil's grain well i feel bread. bad because in montana they haven't even read the jungle yet we're not even up to upton sinclair so they're not even aware of what they're eating yet <laughs> if we're going totally literary i'm sorry i'm sorry did i did i overshoot our audience there? I, I think maybe by next episode we can dive into uh the jungle let, we we need to get the Historian's Book Club needs to work on yeah. Upton Sinclair next. Okay, so we lose James. Do we want to eulogize James? I don't have much more to say about him. Um, not really. Yeah, we, if we talked about this in part two. It's a little sucky that a two-time fan favorite got a pretty negative edit in the third time out. But that being said, I think he was a little pissier the third time out. And he also, you know, ended up going against some pretty big characters. So I think it was unfortunately par for the course for him. All right. Well, the good news is we still have some big episodes coming up, so let's dive right into them here. So episode seven, it's titled I'm Not a Good Villain, which is, I believe, a Jerry quote, correct? So anyway, the previously on Survivor, which I always point out is Jeff steering the narrative, where he flat out says the Russell seed caused Tyson to flip. Russell was 100% responsible for that. And now he points out that Coach and Jerry are now stuck in the middle, and that will be the storyline of this episode. So this is really... Colby's come back. Colby's going to have a big renaissance, and the villains are going to completely collapse now that Boston Rob's alliance has fallen apart, and it will start in this episode. And it starts with Boston Rob being stunned. He has no idea what happened at that vote. He's like, we had it. It was 3-3-3. There was no way that should have failed. And he gets somewhat ominous. Like Rob, you know, for all his faults, is really good at storytelling and giving the the editors and the producers what they need in the episode. And Rob is like, Something doesn't feel right. I feel very uncertain. The first time in three seasons of Survivor, I don't know what's going on, and this does not look good for me. And it's very fitting because that's where we're going in this episode. But I will say that's a great quote. And then uh, the girls are all reassuring Bob, Rob. Oh, no, Tyson just did something dumb. Well, you're fine. There's no way Coach would ever turn on you. No way. Coach loves you. Coach is unable to vote against somebody he's given his word to. And this is where we get, uh, I think this is Courtney bashing Russell now a little. So she's going to join in on the Sandra train. 
Yeah, one of her, like, three big moments this episode. And one of the more gifable moments of the season was him, uh, her comparing him to a bandy-legged little troll who scampers around with his tooth missing. And she does a little, like, Marcel Marceau physicalized gesture of what she thinks Russell looks like. So we have referenced John, or we've, we've, ref, we've referenced Upton Sinclair, we've referenced John Steinbeck, and now we've referenced Marcel Marceau. <laughs> yes. Jay, we, you said we're timeless. We truly, we're in the public domain right now. <laughs> Tune in for the dick jokes you learn about literary, or literary. What the fuck am I talking about? I ruined the word. Tune in for the dick jokes and you learn about classic literature. Herman Melville has not been mentioned yet. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll save him for that's next episode, episode eight. All right. So, so all the uh, Russell and his little harem, Parvati and Danielle, are now giggling. They're just off to the side, giggling over what happened last night because they almost can't believe it. They're like, "I cannot believe that worked." And Boston Rob's in his shelter. He's like, "How can they be so cocky?" He's listening to the three of them giggle. He's like, "We still have five. They have three. Why are they laughing?" And now he's wondering. He's like. Is it possible I don't quite have Jerry and Coach in as tight as I think I do? And sure enough, Q, Jerry, is now Danielle and Russell are going to talk to Jerry, and they're going to pull Jerry over onto their side. Yeah, this is such an interesting perspective from Jerry where, you know, like you said, she's the one who gives this quote. And while Coach definitely has, you know, trying to fight against that gypsy's curse, she is the one who is legitimately, like, heart-torn over this conflict between voting with Rob or voting with Russell. She even says at one point, like, I have fears of commitment. Maybe that's why I've been single for three years. She is she is someone who I think has always brought, like, the way she plays Survivor into the way she is as a person. And I do feel like that conflict reflects in this episode, as opposed to someone like Russell and maybe even Parvati, who's a little more like, yeah, we'll play the game, and then after the game's done, we'll all shake hands and just sort of go on with our lives. Jerry's someone who is really saying no, this reflects who I am as a person, and it shows in that she's really unable to commit to a side right now. Do you think it's because of Jerry's experiences with the show and with the show being at the height of its popularity that that Jerry was the, the villain? Not that it ruined her life, and I don't want to say the word ruined, but it shaped her life so much. Whereas, like, Survivor these days, like, people can talk about, oh, the game's better than ever. Oh, the season's better than ever. Survivor is now very niche in where it is in society. It's just this thing. It's just this ongoing television game show that's just always there and it's a constant. Whereas when Jerry was on the show, it was in the zeitgeist and Jerry was a huge person of that zeitgeist. So I think that, you know, because of that, Jerry brings a lot more thoughtful approach to herself and the game because I think it shaped her in a way. Yeah, I agree with you on you know, on one hand, but on the other hand, why the hell does she flip here? I've it's never understood question. this. It's a wonderful, and that's the thing. Like, there's been this interesting retroconning of Jerry over the years. Like, oh, she wasn't bad in Australia. She was really the hero. Like, she has a wonderful story arc. I love Jerry now, and I'm like, you know, that's all well and good. But how come when they talk about the season, people talk about you know Russell ruining it and Coach ruining it because Coach turns against Boston Rob? Why do we leave Jerry off the hook? She's the one that flips here for no real apparent reason. I mean, she even says, she's like, I'm noncommittal. I, I thought it was cool that what Russell did for Parvati, and even Parvati says, listen, Miss Crazy Pants, like, what do you have a crush on Russell? Are you just jealous? Like, Parvati's kind of mean to Jerry, I, but it's like, why does Jerry flip? I have no evidence for this, no interview to, to point to this, but I feel like there is some closure in all the stuff that went down in All Stars and her being the one that gets cut. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's, 
got to be the motivation there when it was handed on a silver platter to her to take out Boston Rob. And I feel like if anyone, Jerry has to be one of these people who is like really bought into this idea of return, revenge, redemption, whatever the hell it's called. Um, so that would be my guess. But the, the, the irony is, is that I think if she had watched Survivor Samoa, she would not have voted with Russell whatsoever. Yes. No. I love pointing that out. Thank you. No, but but that's the thing, and and I think that what you say is it's the it's the, you know, in a lot of ways they say the devil you know versus the devil you don't. But she doesn't know Russell. But Rob has not like I don't I mean I don't know Rob, but even if she said Rob says hey I guarantee you this I guarantee you this, like I don't know if she totally trust, trusts Rob from you know Survivor All Stars and some things like that. And you know they they went to her and said Final Four, you know Russell Parvati Danielle and you, you know and and. I don't know if Rob has given her any sort of trustworthy, better offer. You know what yeah. I mean? So you consider and go, why did she flip? And it's like, if she's receiving similar ish offers from both sides, she's like, well, don't love Rob. So maybe we'll go with the new meat. And I'll give it to poverty here. I think that if you're talking about previous reputations, she uses her own really well, where she says, I'm going to promise you top four. I did the exact same thing with the girls in Micronesia. And yeah, that's true. Parvati did, you know, end up turning on people like Ozzy and James, but she did stick to that deal that she made or tried to make with Amanda and Natalie and Alexis, you know, on the on during the swap. And I think she's able to sort of, again, while she's really trying to fight this image of her being the quote unquote Black Widow and most dangerous player in the game, she is able to be like, no, I am actually honest. Look what I did, and I do wonder how much that pings on Jerry's radar of. Yeah, she does honor, you know, if she's in with somebody, she's going to help them out, despite maybe what people are believing about her. Yeah. And to back up what Jay said, Jerry does say that, say that in the episode. She doesn't trust Boston Rob from All-Stars. It very much comes up in her thought process. So I can see I can see that being a factor. Although, again, I always have to point out what an advantage Russell had and that nobody had ever seen his season before. Because like Mike said, there's no way she's flipping over to his to his side if she's seen him at play before. He's the only one who had that advantage. All right, so Jerry is going to flip over here, and this is where we get a lot of... I always kind of forgot the subplot that Parvati and Jerry just hate each other. And that Jerry, I know, bashes her in confessionals. Parvati bashes her right here, saying, again, she's crazy pants and calls her emotional. And Russell even says, these two hate each other, yet they're still aligning for my benefit. And again, the quote that you're going to hear a billion times, I'm that good. Does it help at all watching that knowing he's going to get crushed so badly in the end? I love it. This is why I write funny 115 entries for stuff just like that. <laughs> yeah, so that's the that's the villain. So Jerry is now being swayed over to the, you know, it's five against three. And all of a sudden with Jerry over there, or is it five three? No, it's it's yeah, it's five three. So now it's gonna be four four. And now it's a little more dicey for Boston Rob and his friends. And oh oh unfortunately there's a guy who's pledged his loyalty to everybody in the game, including Jerry, and that's coach. So this is gonna be coach's story very quickly here. All right, let's jump ahead. It's uh, I'll, I'll run through the scene as quickly as possible. The heroes now say, well, we voted out James, so Colby, you have to step up. All the pressure's on you. And Colby is like, okay, I will step up. And that's the scene. Now we go to the challenge. And now we play basketball. Yeah. So it's all, it's really, this is Colby's hero redemption for the next two episodes or so, I would say. So people kind of forget that. He actually has a nice little uh, arc here. Time for some basketball. Yeah, and this is uh, this is going to begin, I think it's, what, four challenges in a row that the heroes are going to absolutely crush. And yeah, like you said, this is probably Colby's best performance, where it's the challenge, I believe, from uh, 
it's from Token Sheens, I believe, where it's basically just like, hey, open water, everyone bump each other and try to drown each other and try to score baskets. But I think the bigger thing isn't Colby's domination, but Coach sucking so, so hard at shooting baskets. I just really wish they would have brought out Sandy just to come, like, hop on people and ride them, you know? (laughs) Yeah. This is not how they do basketball in the the Mayan way. This is not how they do that. (laughs) But, yeah, this is the basketball scene, and uh, (laughs) they're out there shooting in the hoops. And I had so much fun with it on the Funny 115, the shot where Coach is wide open, and he airballs it by a good four feet. It's the (laughs) worst shot you've ever seen. But anyway, besides that, the, the heroes dominate, mostly led to Colby, who's just throwing people around. At one point, doesn't he throw Jerry? It's, yeah. At one point, Colby, like, throws Jerry down in the water, which is a nice little— Jerry's down yeah. two for two and just getting her shit wrecked by hero men. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the, the heroes win, and this is a reward challenge. And Colby has this big moment, and he saves the heroes, and they win like a—it's like a picnic at the waterfall, right, or something like that? Mm-hmm. And there's not a whole lot to say. We're going to skim to bigger scenes, but like the, the heroes go to the waterfall, they get a little picnic, and at one point, Candace, he like gets a clue in a napkin for a new idol. And Rupert laments. He's like, oh no, the game is back. We were so tight. We were heroes, and the game has intruded. Oh boy. Well, it's so interesting also comparing this to, I think it's not, it's two episodes from now, right? When they go to Outback, and Parvati also gets a clue in her napkin, and she does literally the exact opposite of what Candace says, which was, hey guys, look, a clue. What's this? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, as a purist, personally, I don't like when they throw in idols and they don't have to. Like, it is a nice little, you would have a nice little redemption story arc if the heroes were to come back now and Colby got his big redemption, but I do see, to Rupert's point a little bit, all right, the game is back, and now we can't do our little hero thing, so. But that's where we're going here. The heroes have vowed to go look for this idol as a group. And now, hey, let's go back to Coach. <laughs> so so the whole rest of this episode will be, who, who is Coach going to side with? Is he going to go with his, his bromance, his idol, Boston Rob? He's always wanted to play with Boston Rob. But now his girlfriend, Jerry, his fair maiden, has chosen to step in with Russell. So now Coach is torn. And again, because of the gypsy curse, Coach cannot tell a lie. He cannot turn against anybody he's given his word to. So Coach basically goes through a nervous breakdown here. Yeah, I, I love that. We get the sad piano music, which I just think at this point, the Survivor editors don't know what to do with this music. Because I believe, isn't this the music that they use for Yule telling Becky about the idol as well? Which just, (laughs) again, it's just, I don't know why they think they're using it here, where it's Coach basically moping, being like, Jerry, why didn't you tell me you were going to make a deal with Russell beforehand? And I think they're trying to make it like it's trouble in paradise, (laughs) but it's such a weird convoluted relationship and i put that in quotations that i do not think it deserves the sad piano music (laughs) you know we bought the rights to that music damn it we're gonna use it (laughs) exactly so yeah russell calls coach over he's like you know coach i'm the greatest and i i love everyone and i'm i my word is my bond and coach is like you know russell just spun pure shit at me (laughs) he's like there's no way i buy that but I have to go with Jerry. I'm unable to steer away from this course that has been predetermined in my life. And it's like, this is the stuff that people love to make fun of Coach about. So so Jerry bought it. Coach has to go with Jerry. Now Coach is so torn, and he pulls Jerry aside. He's like, you, you turned me into a liar, Jerry. You're going to make me turn on Boston Rob. She's like, I'm not making you do crap. He's like, no, you are. You are forcing me down this path. So, yeah, Coach is having he – he goes through a rough day here. He has a little pity party for himself. And what is, I think Jerry has a good quote where she says, coach is too naive. You can't win by not betraying anyone. He's like, 
She's like, he tries to be the good guy, but you can't. It's impossible. And Coach, for some reason, doesn't see that. So Jerry has a nice little uh, moment of clarity there. But that's where we are heading into the immunity challenge here. The What is this? Run across a net and get puzzle pieces. Oh, good. More puzzle challenges. Well, I mean, this is a callback to Africa, which I would say I was pretty surprised at in terms of nobody was cast from Africa, but at least they brought back a challenge from it. Yeah, this uh, this stretch of um, pre-jury episodes or pre-merge episodes, they do a lot of fun, like, random random like you know callbacks to these challenges that only ran once they weren't maybe legendary we'll see it with like that vanuatu challenge you know where russell gets the the immunity idol from jt um a lot of these little ones they they sprinkle in here which i think is always fun if you know your survivor history which i think we like to know, we know a little bit about survivor history sometimes now paul were you sad when you watched the scene and kim johnson is not falling down repeatedly well, I mean, that's why I love, I mean, it's bittersweet because I love this challenge for that reason. A little bit sad that we don't have any old women tumbling about. Does Rupert yeah. count? <laughs> it's not the same. Jeff says, Jeff does say Rupert takes a tumble, which I think is a delightful phrase. <laughs> so, that should be basically his arc for four seasons. <laughs> he also says, gotta be hard to run on that toe. And I just love the runner of I completely forget all the times we cut back like Rupert's toe is going to get tortured in a couple of episodes when he has to stand on it like the J is permanent I guess for the rest of the season now <laughs> yeah so although there's something interesting about this challenge I kind of forgot about you're you're kind of used to the villains winning anytime Boston Rob does a puzzle he basically wins in this season or any other but he actually loses in this one where they get to the puzzle at the end, and it's Rob and Sandra, the typical villain's dream team, and they actually lose the puzzle to JT and Amanda, of all people. So score something for the Montana school system there, Paul, that Amanda beats Rob in a puzzle. Now, normally, in a, suggesting. normally in a narrative, you know, when you have a player, like, you know, in a, especially in a story, when you have someone that's going to die, you know, and they have some activity that they're really good at, you know, it goes the the other way and everyone kind of has a puzzling thing like, oh, it didn't go your way. And it's this weird sort of foreshadowing. So maybe this is, you know, foreshadowing Rob's elimination is Rob loses a puzzle. Ah, it's like the Russian, the big Russian has been cut. It's Rocky four here. It's Rocky four or like, you know, I, I remember, um, I think it was like a video game storyline where somebody was a, a really good uh, poker player and then they lost a poker hand to someone ah. they had no business losing to. And you're just like, oh, no. Yeah. That actually reminds me of a Herman Melville novel. It actually doesn't. I just want to throw that in there. Like the, the whale does something. I don't know. <laughs> so have anyway, you ever read Moby Dick, Mario? I've never read Moby Dick. No, I was too busy watching like Deathstalker 2 Duel of the Titans. It's a very I similar figured. plot, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah. So Rob has fallen, and we go to back to the villains camp. The heroes have won immunity again. The big Colby and heroes renaissance continues, and we go back to the villains camp. And there's some very, very uh, funny scenes here. I made fun of both of them on the funny 115, where now the uh, Russell his group is all of a sudden in power, and they basically have Coach and Jerry. And now it's basically should we take out Boston Rob or one of these two worthless girls, Sandra and Courtney? And we'll repeatedly be reminded how terrible they are in challenges and how they bring no value to anything ever, including a scene where Sandra tries to jump over a, what, about six-inch little stream and she falls on her face in the sand? Oh, it's such a good shot. I love it. And her and Courtney are totally, like, rice and beansing it up, and Courtney's just doubled over in laughter. But, God, I love the, phys the physical comedy of Sandra just, like, 
face planting. And in true, like, Lacey Linares fashion, it, like, lingers for a hot second of, I think, Sandra just sort of sitting there being like, did I just trip and fall <laughs> trying to jump over a piddle of water? Yes. The most successful player in Survivor history, ladies and gentlemen, face first over a six-inch stream. Uh, but I think that the—so that's a great editing moment because that's when, you know, sometimes— Usually in Survivor, when people bring up others' names, they show, like, B-roll of these people doing things. And this is probably one of the best pieces of B-roll with Sandra eating it. But, I mean, the far better piece of editing mastery comes into this next part. Oh, this next one. Even when I watch it now, I cannot believe this scene exists on Survivor. And for people who don't remember it, (laughs) Russell and Boston Rob are talking about who they should vote out tonight. And, like, they're pretending to be allies. They're pretending it's not going to be one or the other. And Russell's like, well... I think we should vote out one of these two, one of the weak girls. And Rob's like, which two? And Russell just turns and the pan- camera pans with him. And Courtney and Sandra are sitting literally right next to him listening to this whole conversation. <laughs> Russell's like, one of these idiots. <laughs> and Rob's like, what? Why on earth would you say that right in front of their face? And it's just the greatest little editing moment. Uh, I, I, I could not think, honestly, of a better way to boil down Russell Hance's social game. It's yes. of him thinking he's making this big braggadocious move that he'll be seen as such a badass, but it comes across as so laughably pitiful in front of everybody else. And again, he'll make he I think what he does to Boston Rob here, what he's able to pull off is awesome and it's a great move for him. But the way in which he's doing this type of stuff, I think Rob just has a great straight man reaction to it where he's like, That's not a way to gather friends, Russell. Is this really how you play one of these? And Russell's like, yeah, that's how I play. That's the way to do it. And Rob's like, no, that's not how you do it. And then Courtney replies, oh, I think he's right. (laughs) Yes. The look that Courtney, again, Courtney, the master of shooting looks at the camera. She's looking right at the camera during that whole scene like, are you getting all this? (laughs) I love it. So, yeah, so Russell and Rob have their little moments. And and Russell's like, I got him scared. He's running scared now. So, again, this is Boston Rob's last stand. And. Boston Rob's going to have an especially pathetic scene where he goes to coach now. And he's like, you know, coach, you, you told me you would always vote for me. I'm your bromance. You were bromancing on your idol. And the final two is going to be the two of us together. And coach is like, yeah, about that. And Rob's like, fuck you. <laughs> Screw you, coach. So, and again, in court, in, in, uh, in coach's defense, he's like, I, I can't vote for Russell. Let's let's vote for Courtney. Like Courtney's useless and useless. So Coach is trying. He's scrambling to kind of you know at least save some of his dignity. At least that doesn't have to choose between Rob and Russell. And Rob's like, no, we can't vote Courtney. Vote for Russell. So it's it's just this big. Uh, <laughs> basically, Coach is put right in the middle. Rob is like, I'm gonna make you prove your loyalty. I'm prove you're a man of your word, and it's not gonna work out so well. So uh, so this is we're just gonna lead up to the vote now. It's basically Russell bragging and Rob scrambling. And is there anything in, important in the middle here before we get to the vote? No. Yeah, I don't think so. It's basically like you said, it's just Rob versus Russell with poor coaches being like, guys, remember when we wanted to vote out Courtney? Shouldn't we just vote out Courtney, everybody? Though, of course, he ends up doing that. And I think this is by far the bigger, you know, offense against Rob than actually voting against him. I wonder if Rob makes the little man comment to coach if coach actually does vote against him. Yeah, coach really punks out here, doesn't he? (laughs) He's but Mario, he's cursed. He cannot. He's, he's cursed. I feel horrible. It's a, the curse that such a man must live with. I hate to I hate to make this comparison, but I'm going to make this comparison. It's the whole, you know, coach gets into this point where, you know, I think the coach doesn't like to for the most part in these in these first 
few times that he plays the game, he doesn't want to be the bad guy, right? He doesn't want to do that. And we haven't seen a ton of people that have been thrust into some sort of pivotal position with that attitude of, I really don't want to vote anyone out, and especially people that I like. I do am reminded of a very early season where somebody didn't want to vote somebody out and said, I will just go in alphabetical order. Mm. Yeah, it's a way to avoid responsibility and everyone else thinks you're a little wimp. <laughs> but it's it's that whole thing where, you know, when people play tabletop games or they play like, uh, uh, you know, games where you, you play like like Mafia or things like that, where like when someone is like playing the game but then saying i don't want to play it that way i'm going to play it in this weird skewed way like it just wrecks the game for everyone else in a horrid way (laughs) is this like someone at blackjack who like hits on 18 and screws it up for everybody yeah i would say like you know i guess you can do it like there's no hard and there's very few hard and fast rules in survivor and we preached all the time you play how you play but it's like when you sit there and go i don't want to vote for one of the two people in the alliances that are going i'm going to vote for a third person it's like you're still affecting the game yeah. yeah, I mean, there are no half measures, which makes me now really want to see Coach in the World of Breaking Bad, because I can imagine that he would just completely freak out at all that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we go to Boston Rob's last stand. This is the big Russell and Rob showdown that has been coming all season. Number two most important storyline behind Parvati, remind you. And uh, and so we get to the Tribal Council, and Jerry has told us, she's like, this is so pathetic, I have to, I'm going to betray someone tonight, either Boston, Rob, or Russell. She's like, I'm not a good villain, I've aged five years, it's terrible. And then uh, we go to the Tribal Council, and this is where Rob again says, Coach, I'm putting you on your on the spot, this is your word, you said you'd never vote for me. And again, Coach finds a technicality, because Coach, that's what he does, he's a man of honor, nobility, and technicalities that he does not vote for Rob or Russell. He throws away a vote in the middle for Courtney, so it ends up being four to, against Boston Rob, three against Russell, and then Coach's meaningless vote for Courtney, which still skews the vote despite what he thinks, and Boston Rob goes home, not before turning to Coach and denying him a hug and saying, you're a little man. And this is tough because doesn't Coach also get denied for a hug in South Pacific as well? So the guy just wants a hug, and that goes unrequited in his Survivor career. <laughs> I rewatching this today, I literally laughed out loud when he said that, even though I knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say the first time I met Coach in person, I gave him a hug just to make up for all the denied hugs he'd ever had. So I felt bad. But I mean, that's the whole, you know, you talk about honesty, integrity and stuff like that. And it's like Rob, for the most part, has done it. Like Rob plays the game hard. And like when he got voted out in Marquesas, like, I mean, was he disappointed? Sure, he's disappointed. But it's like, you know, he got voted out and, you know, the people voted for him. They looked at him. They voted him out. And it's like, you know, did he do you know, you could talk about his move in Survivor All-Stars. It's pretty nefarious. Right. But for all intents and purposes, Rob stood at final tribal council and looked at all those people while they just spit all that venom at him. He didn't look away. He didn't do anything. He just took it. Right. And in the end, they didn't vote for him to win. Three of them or four of them didn't, right? And they gave it to Amber. And it's like, oh, well, you got it anyway because they got married. But Rob, you know, stands up for those things. But with Coach doing this lateral move to vote for Courtney, like, are you serious? So in terms of Survivor history, at least up to this point, Boston Rob getting voted out pre-merge, is he, in terms of storyline, one of the biggest pre-merge boots ever? I mean, it'd be hard to argue he's not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because I'm thinking about, like, impact. Like, you could say that the Silas vote and the Hunter votes were, like, just very big seismic shifts in the game of Survivor. But I feel like from a narrative perspective, maybe Silas comes close, but it's really tough 
to beat Boston Rob, considering that he has that history going in, and he also just had so much material revolving around him. Maybe Richard Hatch in All-Stars, but that was more of an inevitability than anything. Yeah, well, I would say it has to be this one, because this is really a two-part season. It's the Boston Rob half and then the Russell half. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot the poverty half. But the, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so this literally ends the first half of the season. So I can – there's nobody. Like Richard, that's just a formality. Somebody has to vote him out, but it doesn't change the game. It's just a big moment you're waiting for. This literally changes the entire season. From here on out, you know it's going to be the Russell season, which is why – that's my argument why I don't think this is necessarily a great season. I think it's way too Russell-heavy in the second half, and it's very tedious to get through sometimes. But that's, that's my argument. This one has to be the biggest pre-merge boot. Anybody else you can dispute that? No. I concur. <laughs> All right. I have to say a couple things. I don't want to say too much about Rob because he's going to pop back up later in Survivor history. But the episode before this, Banana Etiquette, always gets mentioned as like one of the greatest episodes of all time. I actually like this episode more just because I think it's told very well. I agree. It's a, Yeah, it's like a Greek tragedy of coach. Well, it's very straightforward, right? It's okay – it's three versus three, and these are the two votes to swing over. I think the editors are able to benefit from that, where maybe unlike last episode where they have to map out what this complicated voting strategy is and how it gets screwed up, it's very simple, and it's very emotional. And I love how much Survivor history gets involved, how much Coach's way of playing the game gets involved. It's very you know, understandably focused on the villains to the point where I feel like we get everyone's perspective. And so I think that you know the hero stuff is fine but from the villain's perspective i think it's an extremely well done episode i agree yeah. to before, me go ahead to to me when you when you craft something that it's a reason you brought up breaking bad the television show and not to divulge too much but something that why i feel like breaking bad is such a like a, a a landmark television show and just in almost a work of art in and of itself nothing really on breaking bad is so super swervy right and oftentimes in breaking bad in the cold open they'll show you a shot that is going to be the end of the episode, like the, the result of the climax. They basically tell you the ha- what's going to happen first, but they don't care. It's not about surprising you. It's about telling the story of how you get there. And, you know, a lot of times in Survivor, especially modern one with all these idols and twists and this and that, is they try to get you this gotcha ending. Like, you know, they're, they're not going to show you a lot of the important things. And then the, the final swerve kind of happens right at the end of the episode. And you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And it's like, you know what's coming in this episode. It's Rob versus Russell with the two swing boats in the middle, and you don't know which way they're going to go. But, like, you start to see during the episode, especially at the beginning, that, like, Jerry and Coach are kind of going to go to Russell and Parvati's side. And it's okay. It's okay that we see that coming because now we can ex- not exploit it, but but we can tell this story, flesh it out, and show everyone's emotions going with this seismic shift. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up Borneo and Sean earlier because this is very much an old school episode. It's one of the rare – it's funny to say call this modern season 20, but this is more a modern episode kind of told in an old school way. And it literally is the J for Jenna of Heroes versus Villains. And I've always argued J for Jenna is my favorite and I think the best episode of Borneo. I think it's told so well and it's laid out from start to finish exactly like it should and it tells a complete – standalone story and this episode does well this is the j for jenna right down to some douche in the middle messing it up because he wants to go all war games and he decides the only winning move is not to play the game and he messes it up for everybody so it's yeah i'm glad you brought up the sean kind of uh comparison because it's uh, very perfect in this one plus i believe coach does have pierced nipples as well 
<laughs> yes. Well, they have to do that because in a lot of those early seasons, people were not deviating from votes. Like there's a lot more flux these days with idols and with, you know, just the fact that Sesternino and Amazon sort of introduced the fact of like you can you can swap alliances and you can swap people and you can kind of, you know, get things going. You know, back in those early seasons, you know, when once alliances were kind of formed, they were for the most part hard and fast. And so a vote was going to be inevitable. And so it was not about like, ooh, what's the surprise vote at the end of the episode? You can sort of tell the story about how people get there. And I think that with this one, yeah, I guess there's a question because maybe Jerry and Coach don't flip. But it seems very apparent toward the beginning of the episode that they're going to side with Parvati and Russell. And if the villains are going to go to tribal council, it's going to be Boston Rob that's going to go home. You know, even though they don't telegraph it from second one, it's 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 there. But at the same time, they then take the time to tell that downfall, that story. And I know that we, you know, make a lot of fun of Russell's sense of ego. But to be fair, he kind of did the exact same thing two seasons in a row, where he is in a minority position in a tribe. Granted, this time around, unlike Samoa, I think he sort of put himself there, that you could argue about his tactics in Samoa as well. And he's able to work his way over. This is sort of comparable to, you know, him swinging over Shambo, and then also getting John Fincher to, you know, vote with him temporarily to not force the tie. So now it's crazy to see, especially when you're looking at the first few episodes. But now that trio of Russell, Parvati, and Danielle are on the top of the villains. They have uh, they have unthroned, you know, one of the biggest personalities in Survivor history. Yeah, I agree. But you can also make the argument that a truly great player never puts themselves in that hole to begin with. <laughs> right. Unless you're Rupert. And then that's then then that's decor. But before we move on, Paul, I want to get your thoughts on this episode because I just wanted to, again, mention, I think this is personally the Dark Horse best episode of the season. So I'm curious what you think of this one because it's old school. Yeah, it's so funny. With a lot of these um, Heroes vs. Villains episodes, I can remember exactly where I was. And I remember I watched this one all by myself because it was at the end of a spring break or the beginning of a spring break, I think. And everyone else had left and I was going to be leaving the next day. And I remember watching it in bed and just being, like, so depressed afterwards. Like, it was like holy crap like 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 i remember knowing in that moment like what a shift had happened so um i would pretty much echo pretty much everything else you said that this really does totally shift the direction the season goes in um and really solidifies that this 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 season is about russell whether you like it or not um this will become the russell show part two yeah and i'll always argue that's the problem with the second half of the season why i don't think it's personally that strong and my argument has always been, if that JT letter doesn't pop up, there's almost nothing you'd remember about the second half other than the ending. The ending is kind of a swerve, and you get a very uh, fun showdown. But that's my argument, and I'm curious if we'll see that as we go through it here. All right, second half of the season. This is the ex- episode called Expectations, and I love Probes with his, his over-the-top previously on segment on this one. Last week, our most epic battle yet. Heroes only down se- or heroes are only down seven to five now. And he's and this is where he goes. How will losing Boston Rob's awesomeness affect the villains? Did Russell's ego just doom them? So now he's full on editorializing here. <laughs> yeah, when it says like most epic battle yet, you assume it's about heroes versus villains. I would say he's referring to Rob versus Russell. <laughs> I don't think there's any uh, dispute of that. I think that's exactly what he's talking about. Uh, the heroes happen to be here too. Yeah, exactly. There's five people. They might be looking for an idol or something. <laughs> yeah. 
So we start with Russell gloating that he has defeated Boston Rob, and him and Parvati are laughing off to the side. And Russell, of course, has now stolen Boston Rob's catchphrase, I'm the best, he ain't nothing, if you ain't with me, you against me, or something like that. Um, and Coach is now furious for some reason. He's like, Russell is a bully. I do not like how he did that. I'm like, you helped. <laughs> Coach, I, 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 I am so mad. To be fair, Coach could be like, like, well, while Russell was bullying, I was merely standing there and watching you get beat up. So I cannot be blamed for this. Yes. But he does go to Jerry and he does, you know, lay into her a little bit. He's like, why were you so quick to get rid of Boston Rob? And then uh, he's like, well, she's like, well, I didn't like Rob either. Like there was a problem. Like, he had, I had issues with him too. What do you stand? So it's, and, and coach is now furious that they've lost Boston Rob because he's so good at, you know, camp life and social activity and challenges. They like worked in the toe. We're toast. We have no way to win. We're fractured. We lost our best athlete. We lost Tyson right before that Coach is like, he's very prophetic here. We're in the crapper. The villains are never going to win again. And surprisingly that that is exactly what happens. <laughs> Do you? Th- I mean, you would think that in another world, this is a perfect scenario for Coach, Mister Loves to Lead. That now there is a vacuum that he is going to step into and properly screw up for the next episode. I know. If only they were in a situation now where he could lead them in, like Coach Chi or something. You'd think that would be good for him. All right. So the villains are now fractured. Even though Russell has power, they're not really going to be the dominant tribe at any point now for quite a while. The heroes. This season is all about the heroes now. Of course, number two story story behind Parvati being the big story. But the heroes are now the big story. They're going to have a big comeback. So they're the tight five, Rupert calls them, and they're doing everything together. And Colby has you know, joined the team, and he's one of their leaders now. But surprisingly enough, JT is going to do something villainous. He's going to go look for an idol and not tell anybody. There's a fun little, like, fast-forward pan that they do where Amanda's walking down the path, I don't know, probably thinking, wondering if Bread's anywhere else, and JT finds the idol, and they just do like a sub-broop over to Amanda, who happens to be wandering down the path in his way, and again, if we're talking about sort of sliding doors moments in Survivor history, if Amanda doesn't see JT find that idol, does he write that letter, and does he make that big move? Well, I never thought I'd say this, but thank God for Amanda. Isn't Amanda great, Paul? Absolutely. It only <laughs> I, took how many seasons, how many days in the game, how long for you to admit it? Nearly a hundred yes. days of the game for Amanda. <laughs> Mario, you right. didn't Mario, you didn't ask me if I think Amanda is great. Jay Fisher, what do you think about Amanda? Nay. <laughs> <laughs> like a horse. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I worded the, the uh, wording wrong, so I screwed up your joke a little, but I apologize. But it still worked. It, it oh, I was going with it either way. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, Candace and Amanda are like, wow, JT found an idol. And wasn't it fortunate, Amanda, that you happened to walk up and find and see it? And she's like, yeah, I was. So they don't trust JT as far as they can throw him. And you think this will fall apart. It really doesn't actually go anywhere, but it's a neat little JT's kind of a douche move. No, I don't know. They they will say when he writes the letter, like, one of the reasons why Amanda and Candace don't put up enough of a, a fight is because they say, like, well, this will get the idol away from him. So I do wonder <laughs> okay. if, like, somebody else – and. To be fair, there's this really weird thing where I think we're starting to see how fallow-centric the hero's camp is, where Candace and Amanda basically say, like, yeah, we'd say something, but, like, everyone loves JT, and they're not going to believe us, which is kind of sad. <laughs> so, wait, I'm you're going say- to Go ahead. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to give Amanda credit. I think I've given Amanda credit on other episodes of Survivor Historians we have, but, like, 
we, we can make fun of Amanda all we want. And, you know, I don't know if Amanda deserved to win any of the seasons that she did and all, all that other sort of stuff. But like Amanda is extremely perceptive in a lot of ways. And I think that she's almost uh, like if you were creating a survivor player out of a lab, like a lot of the things you would create would be Amanda. And so there are things that she does in this in this game and even in even thoughts that she has and observations that he has that are like spot on. Yeah, I I will say that is true because she did notice that there was bread on the hot dogs. Powers <laughs> of observation. Very astute. Yeah, so so we go back to the villains camp and they're just eating burned crab and everyone's whining because they have no food and yeah, everyone's pulling, shutting down. Lisi and smashing crabs with a hammer like they're ants. Yeah, and so surprisingly, without Boston Rob there, they don't have a lot of leadership. <laughs> so coach is like, "This sucks. We're toast." So. We're going to go to the reward challenge, which... Whoa, 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 this hold episode... on. Yeah, I was going to say, they get tree mail first. Oh, what's the tree mail? I, don't, I didn't even write down well, the tree mail. this is the tree mail where they say, like, oh, here's your biggest feast yet. You'll compete individually. And the villains are like, great, merge. The merge, yeah. Because let's remember, they're at 12 people. They just merged at 12 in Samoa, even though they hadn't seen that season. So the villains, and maybe it's because they're so desperate, they are looking for a merge to the point where they deconstruct... Their entire camp, I guess the legacy of Boston Rob in this camp is completely erased to Russell's, uh, you know, glee that they pack everything up to bring to the challenge in the hopes that it's going to be a merge. Yes, I forgot about that. Yeah, they go to the merge, think they go to the, the feast, thinking it's going to be a, they go to the reward challenge, thinking it's going to be a merge. So I had a lot of words mixed up there. And so they get there and it's a reward challenge and surprise, it's just a typical reward challenge. There's not a merge, although Probes does a little dick move here. Yeah, Jeff Probes says, everybody drop your, and they're all like, yay. And Rupert's like, yay. And he says, expectations. And they're like, oh. oh. Well, that's where you insert the prices right losing horn. Dun, 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 dun. I don't know. I kind of love it, though, because I think, like, you want to you want to fuck with them a little bit, right? Especially if they assume they're, you know, maybe he still is reeling from All-Stars when people were a bit too friendly with him. He's like, no, no, no. We're the ones holding the stick here. We, you do not tell us when we merge. I will tell you when we merge. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's, there's some great fun moments in this scene besides, besides the drop your expectations where the heroes get there and they see that Boston Rob has been voted out of all people. And they're like, oh, my God. And Rupert, you know, Kreskin, the amazing Kreskin that he is here, says, wow, sure looks like they got a woman's alliance. Why, would he, <laughs> why, why does he say that? <laughs> why is that your first instinct? And Rupert will double down on this every single time, thinking that it's a women's alliance, to the point that JT will start going along with it. But never let it be forgotten that Rupert is the douchebag who started that. But also, like, why do you vocalize that? You don't need to say that. You don't need to say what you think the other tribe is doing because you're revealing to them like what you think the pecking order is. That's completely inane to me. Like wow. I now have I now have like the in, innermost desire for Rupert to become like a baseball coach. And for steal him to like, third. Able, steal third on the next pitch, okay? <laughs> Throw a curveball. I can just imagine him playing password, just pizza. <laughs> Look at all those pretty women over there. I could stroke their hair and break their necks. All right. So so not only do they announce that there's a women's alliance, but JT now looks over to Russell and says, hang in there. <laughs> all right, and we're, we're only a couple of episodes away from Russell doing the fantastic prayer hands, but I think this yes. is where he starts picking it up. Yeah, so the women's alliance card has been played, which <laughs> stupidly by Rupert. And... Uh, Turns out this is just a regular reward challenge. They're going to be doing tiki bowling, which is from Samoa, well, right? Hold on. What I love about that as well is that like they assume it's a woman's challenge 
or women's alliance, they look at Russell and say, hang on there. And they just give no regard to coach because coach <laughs> is just a non-factor. Well, this, I guess this will predate the South Pacific finale when Sophie regards coach as a girl. They already did it. <laughs> look at that tall girl with the cane. Yeah. <laughs> I think that girl with the doing the the Tai Chi is the leader. <laughs> She's already wearing the kimono. In seriousness, though, like how how much do they just discredit Coach? Like they're just like he, it's Coach. Who cares? <laughs> yes. So speaking of Coach, this is one of the great underrated Coach moments where Coach will doom his tribe here. Where Coach is now the de facto leader of the villains, and he sees the reward. The reward is for pizza. And he's like, you know what? I really want that pizza because we're hungry. So we have to make sure we win this challenge. So he sits out Sandra and Courtney, which will not only they'll lose this challenge, but now Sandra and Courtney have to participate in the immunity challenge. So Coach's bloodlust for pizza costs them here, costs them immunity. Costs him, not only that, it costs him getting voted out. Coach gets himself voted out because he wants pizza. <laughs> Yeah, this is maybe worse than Jeff Varner and the peanut butter. It's less direct, but you can see the connections here. Yes, I am. I am physically unable to deny pizza. Thanks to the gypsy <laughs> yeah. curse. Yeah, the, the curse was out of Chuck E. Cheese from the Gypsy. I cannot give up anything for pizza. So speaking of Chuck E. Cheese, we got, we, we've had all these challenges of kill each other, kill each other, kill each other. Hey, let's do some bowling. Apparently, Jay Fisher, you've never been in a bowling league where people drink. It's very competitive. I have not. See, you're you and your ivory tower reading your F. Scott Fitzgerald. I'm out down here with the people in bowling leagues. I'm less than forty years old. <laughs> Shut up. You're my like Tom Westman. Met, my parents met in a mixed gender bowling league. I would expect I... nothing less, Paul. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Did they meet at the bowling league next to the McCormick Reaper that was standing nearby? <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah, were they playing tiki bowling just out in the middle of a field? Yeah, but they use like um, since the bread gets so hard, you kind of just roll like a like a roll, you know, and it hardens. <laughs> yeah, that's where fast, the word so came from actually... for Montanans is that they would actually exactly. roll the bread. It's yeah. just dried out piece of bread that you just roll. <laughs> so well, anyway, they, they so coach they yeah yeah so coach has now dictated how they're going to go. He's like, there's two things in life that I must have at all times: honor and deep dish. So Coach announces they will do that, and then the, the villains go out there and they get dusted in bowling. <laughs> where, where I think the only one who wins a point is uh, Russell. Russell beats Colby, and otherwise the heroes win. And the heroes win the reward. Their big winning streak continues. They get pizza, and the villains now will be forced to, to participate. their two worst challengers in the immunity challenge, so good job, Coach. And they have to rebuild their camp. Yes, that is a bad coach. I'm sorry, I have to say the obvious. Here. That's a terrible coach that he like allowed this move, made the worst pick in terms of putting people into competitions for his own selfish needs, and then completely loses it all. Yes, I'm going to point this out though because I, I'm a I'm moving this along, but b uh, just getting into the next thing. So Coach and Jerry and Coach sort of did the 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 wimpy move, but Jerry and Coach have flipped over to Russell's side, right? So now they've got. Russell, uh, Parvati, Danielle, and like Coach and Jerry are involved there. And it's like, so now they're like, we're the, the majority alliance here. But we've all forgotten about Courtney and most importantly, Sandra. And now Sandra's going to start to do some work. 
Yeah, although that's it's kind of a misleading storyline, and we'll get through that at the end of the episode here. But yeah, we get the pizza feast where the heroes sit around and eat pizza, and Russell, of course, they sure got a strong women's alliance. It's like, shut up. Yeah, the, the string finally like came back on the yay, and now he's doing his other phrase about the women's alliance. Yeah. So we go back to the villains camp and the villains are now going to basically have a huge downfall where now they're all pointing fingers like, why did we why didn't we sit Sandra and Courtney? Why do we have to participate now or they have to participate? We have no camp anymore, no shelter because we tore it down. This sucks. Why did we vote out Boston Rob? And this is where Sandra, yes, like Jay said, Sandra sits there and lays the bitch smack down on every single member of her tribe. Let's see. She says, in the confessional, of course. This is the worst tribe ever. I should not even be here. I should be on the heroes. And then she goes, I can't stand Jerry. I hate Coach. I hate Danielle. I hate Russell even more. And then she changes her mind. She's like, you know what? I equally hate all of them. I hate all of them equally. And this will be Sandra's basically revenge mission from here on out. Yeah, she pulls the half-baked, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. You're cool. Fuck you. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the only person Sandra likes now, and again, this will actually become Sandra's story a little bit here, although, again, it's it actually does not have a, tie, a payoff at the end of the episode. But Sandra will say, you know what? I hate Russell. Let's do something to get back at him just to show him. And it's kind of one of those. You think you're dealing with someone bad before you ain't dealing with me yet. And so now Sandra's going to start playing the Russell card where she starts talking smack. And she tells Courtney, she's like, you want to do something? Let's go get even with with coach and Russell. And so Sandra's plan is. Let's just tell Russell that Coach is trying to get him. Coach is trying to put up an alliance against him behind the scenes. Russell's so paranoid and stupid, he'll fall for it, and we'll get Coach voted out. So why not? It's one one more bastard we get out of here. So that's basically Sandra's plan. I will say, as much as we were talking about, you know, nobody knew Russell, so, you know, he had a big advantage there. Sandra does a great job of reading the very limited information she knows about Russell and saying, I know that if somebody, if he knows somebody is going against him, He's going to go after them. It's, it's, it's as if it's his favorite catchphrase. If you're not with me, you're against me. And I I mean, I honestly think this is not only the flashiest, but the best move she does this entire game. And she was totally correct in her read on Russell. Yeah. What's funny is how easy it is. She's like, I'm going to go work, work my magic. And like within the next scene, again, we have no idea how much time has passed. But the way it's told in the story, she goes right to Russell. She's like, hey, you know, coach is trying to put some together an alliance against you. And Russell looks up, and there's Courtney and Coach on the beach talking, and Russell's like, I hate him. Sandra's like, yeah, you should hate him. He's terrible. So Sandra's like, Russell's so stupid, he ate that crap up. Oh, my God. And I will say, this is really, like in two seasons, you have to remember Survivor history here. This is all we know up to this point is Russell dominating everything in Samoa, Russell getting his way every single time in Heroes versus Villains. This really is legitimately the Emperor has no clothes moment for Russell where it's shown a player embarrasses him very easily and very quickly. And it's the first time that has ever been shown in two seasons of Survivor. So it should have been a good tip-off Russell was not going to win this season because they would not have put that in if he was going to win this season. And I do believe this is where she drops the quote. He's like, Sanders like, Russell's done good so far, but with me, he don't know what he got himself into. And it's interesting because, I mean, Rob has said that several times, though, right? Like, I think when he votes for Russell, one of the past two tribal councils, he's like, you know, uh, you're in the big leagues now, and he unfortunately falls because of that. But it's almost like Rob had to fail so Sandra could succeed, where essentially she's going to be the one that really does conquer him by being like, you don't know how to deal with me. And yeah, Russell's this is to- her. She's picking up the torch here. This is like a, the handoff. Yeah. But I think Although- that there's there's also an innate sense that, you know, Russell immediately understands that Rob is a threat for some reason, but Russell did not see that Sandra is a threat. Mm-hmm just as Russell didn't see that Natalie White is a threat. 
I, I wonder what the parallels are there. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. Very good point. Although it is, I of course, should be pointed out, I don't believe he'd ever seen Pearl Islands. Like, that was the thing at the time. A lot of people said, oh, Russell was this big Survivor fan. He knew everything about Survivor. And it came out later. No, he didn't. Like, he'd only seen one or two seasons. And I'm sure Pearl Islands was not one of them. I'm I'm not 100% sure he knew Sandra was a former winner, to be honest. I mean, maybe in preparation for almost being on Pirate Master, he had watched Pearl Islands, but that's about it. Yeah. Although I will have to point out one thing in Russell's defense that gets overlooked here is that in the episode, it's made to look like Russell's being fooled by Sandra and he's being tricked to voting for coach. But Russell brings up a really good point here. And I want to make sure this gets noted is that Russell says, you know, if we vote out coach, it looks like there's even more of an all girls alliance. He tells that to Parvati and Danielle. He's like, that's not that bad a move because that'll just reinforce what the heroes think about us. So there's some thought process there that I don't think it's 100% Sandra here that Russell actually realizes there might be some benefit to this. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's not and it's 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 not this 100% either way. You know, it's not that Russell was totally fooled and, you know, just is like ah, coach is villain number one. And then later on, he says, oh, and also this all girls alliance thing. And I also don't think that he was not, you know, he wasn't fooled at all by Sandra and didn't just said, well, even if we go with her and get rid of coach, then, you know, it's this perpetuation of all girl alliance. I think he was fooled. I think he thought that coach was probably maybe conspiring against him. But at the same time, he's like, I'm not loyal to anyone except for maybe Parvati. So like, you know, if, if, if Sandra wants to get rid of coach, coach is like, fine. You know, I hate coach coach looks like he's going against me. And also it does this other thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the last in first out mentality. Right. And I think that's where the, the brilliance of Sandra's move also comes in as well, which is like, she's not saying, Hey, Danielle said that yeah. it was a mistake getting rid of Rob. She chooses her target very wisely. And like Mario said, maybe it just was a pure coincidence for Vindiction. But the fact that she pointed out Coach, who Russell could see even last episode, didn't even vote for Rob. He was so guilt-stricken about it. It's like the perfect person to pin it on. Yeah, and I will say, this is in, in fairness of uh, disclosure here, it's presented that Sandra tricks Russell into voting out Coach. I should point out, Russell does not vote for Coach at the end of this episode. Yeah. They kind of bury that in the edit. Russell doesn't even vote for him. It's the girls that do. Yep. And that's, a, and that's a smart move in itself, though, if he wants to get in good with Jerry and be like, I don't know what happened. And he says even in the beginning of the next episode, like, I didn't write his name down. That's a, that's a great way for that alliance to still guarantee they're in with Jerry without her deciding to jump over with Sam it is, Courtney. It's a smart move. Yeah, it's absolutely I agree. smart. Yeah, they are playing it smart here. They just, without Boston Rob, they don't have a rudder, but they're still playing it fairly smart. So uh, let's see. We go to the immunity challenge. It's one where they have to race through the mud. And uh, Courtney or uh, yeah, Courtney and Sandra are so worthless. The villains just get decimated because they're forced to both be in this challenge and they lose. So the heroes decimate the villains yet again. The hero's winning streak is intact. And we go back to uh, the villains camp. And this is where everyone starts pointing fingers where who they should vote out. And I think Danielle's like, don't vote out coach, vote out Courtney. She's so worthless. And it really becomes an issue. Is it going to be Courtney for just being the most worthless challenge performer ever? Or is it going to be Coach, this blindside against Coach? And uh, nothing nothing really happens here. They just kind of debate it for a while up to Tribal Council, right? Yeah, though I will say, what I forget about watching this season in retrospect is Danielle, again, is going to be a little blip on the radar. She does get her big moment where Russell just decimates her emotionally uh, in front of the jury at that Tribal Council where she goes. But I will say Danielle has 
pretty a pretty good read on what's going on in the game. You know, she's the one who's going to say when it comes down to Courtney versus Sandra, we need to get rid of Sandra. Sandra's much more dangerous. They don't listen. Here, she's going to be like, we need to keep coach or we're going to keep losing. We need to vote off Courtney. They don't listen. That's exactly what happens. So I do wonder, you know, if Danielle had a bit more sway over Parvati and Russell in the decisions that they end up making, if we wouldn't have had a two-time winner of Survivor up to this point. But the problem is, is that you're right, Mike. Danielle is extremely astute at what's going on, but Danielle is looking at an alliance of three or more, whereas Russell and Parvati are looking at an alliance of two or one. Hmm. Nope, that's a good point. I agree. Yeah, like I think she's... They're using Danielle, but like ultimately they're like, we're not going to do what you want to do. We're going to do what's best for us. Yeah. I think she's far more prominent in what's going on than people, most people tend to assume, but she's not prominent in the storyline. And again, Russell and Parvati don't really have much need for her. She's just a third vote. And I think, you know, it also doesn't help that Russell's going to be the one in charge of the tribe. And they're making the big argument of like, we keep losing these challenges. They don't know. Russell was part of the, you know, a tribe that ran itself into the ground and went from 10 people to four by the time the merge happened. Losing challenges is of no concern to Russell. All that matters is that he has control at this point in time. So it, it really, you, that's not an argument you can make to him at this point. Okay, so we'll jump ahead to Tribal Council here. Um, this is where we're going to lose Coach. Coach will be blindsided. The Dragon Slayer's journey will end here, sadly. But... Not before we get a little knockdown drag out between Courtney and Probst start going at it for a while. It's like Courtney's one big moment of the season. So what exactly happens here? What, what Probst says, like, you voted out Boston Rob. Like, why? Why would you vote out him over someone like Courtney? And Courtney, of course, takes offense to that. And they start going after it. And, and uh, he, he says, no disrespect. And she's like, thank you, Jeffrey. And they start snipping at each other. And he's like, why would you vote out Boston Rob? And Courtney points out, I didn't vote out Boston Rob, you dick. I was just a... Does, <laughs> doesn't she get kind of snippy with Jerry, too, in there? Because Yeah, because, yeah, and I think that, because uh, she, basically, she basically says, like, Jerry, you voted for Boston Rob. You voted with this alliance that you voted against last time. I mean, she, brings, she basically says, insulting me won't bring them back, which I think she's saying to both <laughs> the players and Jeff. Because, yeah, because Jeff literally says, don't you think the tribe would rather have Tyson or Rob than you right now? Yeah, that's a good point, Jeff. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. But yeah, Courtney really lays into him, and she defends herself real well, and she's like snippy to probe. She's like, thanks, Dad, which is a great line. And then where she says, you know, I'm a determined little bitch. I'll do whatever I can to make it to the end, which she's shown. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, power is kind of – and fate is out of her hands at this point, and, and she's not going to be able to control much. And anyway, the tribe goes up there, and they all vote out coach, and this is the end of the Dragon Slayer. Although I should point out we get another great – Again, in her one good episode, perhaps, where Courtney, her vote for coach when she votes him out is, quote, and I quote, this is word for word, you're a frigging lunatic, and I'm just glad I don't have to live with you anymore. Nice feather in your hair. It's great. It's fantastic. Because yeah. I feel like it's been a little while since we've had, like, people mocking coach. We did have a little bit of, like, stuff with coach Chi, but this is the first time in a while that, you know, I'm glad we don't have, a, we don't have, unfortunately, too much Courtney snark in the limited time she's uh, shown in Heroes versus Villains, but we got it a little bit here, which I'm very happy about. Yeah. And with that, we lose Coach. He's voted out four to three. And again, I point out that Russell did not even vote for him. It was, you know, Courtney and Sandra, and then Danielle and Parvati also voted for Coach. So Russell did not. He actually voted for uh, Courtney. So 
With that, Coach, the Dragon Slayer, his journey has ended. The last eagle screech is over. He becomes the first member of the jury. And this is where I have to point out the fact that most people know this, but a lot of you know newbie survivor listeners may not be aware of this. The, the, the words that Coach was spelling out on his parchment, which is one of the greatest things ever, is that Coach was so sure he was going to win the season, he was spelling out the word Dragon Slayer on his parchment whenever he cast a vote. And unfortunately... He only got four tribal councils in, so all he spelled out were D-R-A-G, and that's why this season will always be a drag for Coach Wade, the Dragon Slayer. He did not quite finish his mission. It's, it's not the letters he's spelling out. It's the numbers. It's the numbers that correspond with the letter. If you see his numbers, that's what he's doing. Yeah, he was trying to spell try and drink your, remember to drink your Ovaltine. Uh, and, <laughs> yes. and to be fair, I think the, the heroes did think he was a man in drag at one point, so the message does make sense. <laughs> that women's alliance, strong. Mario was so, you know, as the biggest coach fan, obviously, on the panel, what did you think about Coach 2.0, especially in comparison to Coach 1.0? When I first saw it, I just mocked him. Like, he was the funniest thing ever to me. And token chains and heroes versus villains were almost back to back. So, like, there was almost no breathing room in the middle. And I just saw it as one big mocky storyline. Like, oh, my God, this guy's so full of himself and ridiculous. And so I wrote the stuff on the Funny 115, and I... I will say memorialized him. Some would say mock the shit out of him. I don't know, but I was kind of mean in some of the stuff. But when I watch the second season now, I feel a little more bad for him. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think his storyline's a little sadder and more pathetic. It wasn't quite as goofy and over the top as the first time. So I can almost feel bad in a way. But I will throw a little asterisk onto that at the end and say, Coach himself has told me that when he read The Funny 115, he's like, that opened my eyes so much to the way people perceive me. He's like, I, I honestly have to say that changed the way that I act because I had no idea I came off that way to people. So he's told me personally, he's like, I really thank you for doing that. It was mean and like it was hurtful to read at the time, but it was funny enough that I was realized, okay, maybe I was a little over the top. And he's actually said he's changed the way he lives life and acts towards other people. And he's not such a blowhard about stuff. Thanks to he, he tells me, Adam, I'm not, I'm not just saying this. He tells me, he's like, it's your writing that really opened my eyes. So I feel bad at some of the stuff I wrote about him. But at the same time, I'm glad there was a long-term good effect out of it. I think he's he's very happy in his life these days. And I think he looks back at embarrassment at these seasons and what he was like. What a hero you are, Mario. Oh. <laughs> I just want to be like Tom and Colby. I don't know. What do you guys think about Coach? That's my thoughts. It was I loved watching him at the time, but watching this season, he's a little more sad, I think, now. Well, I think it's Agreed. also more, it's, it's more limited as well. I mean, he took up so much screen time in Token Chains, and there was so much grandiose stuff that was going on. Nothing was going to beat that Exile trip, but, I mean, it's sort of like the perfect way to bring back a castaway in that you can sort of hit the greatest hits while still dealing with some new stuff with Coach. Like, as you pointed out, the floaty the basketball whiffing, drag. So there was still some stuff to add to the coach repertoire, but, I mean, it's still pretty obvious that Token Sheens is just sort of like the pinnacle of coach. This was a fine follow-up, I would say. He He's a cartoon character in this episode, whereas, you know, he's cartoonish in Token Sheens. He has an arc in Token Sheens, like uh, a player arc, uh, a character arc. He has no arc here. He's just coach, and he's just doing coach things, and then he's gone. Yeah, and the other players and probes mock him the entire season. Like, it yeah. never stops. So, yeah. like you said, there's no arc. He's just a – I would almost say it's like Jerry. Jerry in – in. we'll talk about more when she gets voted out. But she was a wonderful villain for four episodes in Australia. And then Tina shanks her. Tina backstabs her, and she's done. And Jerry's like a laughing stock the rest of the season. And that's really kind of what coaches the second in the second time around. How about you, Paul? We haven't heard your coach thoughts. 
Um, no, I would agree. And I actually kind of like that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be good that he comes back later on for his legacy, even though it's going to also end kind of in a failure for him. But then I think you get to kind of really dive deeper into coach. I don't think this gets us anywhere with really learning who coach is, or it, it's just kind of like a watered down, goofier version of the coach we saw before. So I think for his sake and for his, uh, his character arc over the over the show's history. I think it's good that we're going to get him one more time, even though we'll be sick of him by the by the end of that. Yep. And he is going to pull off some epic jury outfits where he pulls out the full on Dragon Slayer kimono the first time. So he is the first juror. We'll see a lot of him. Don't worry, he'll be back. All right. And with that, we have finished off uh, eight episodes of Heroes versus Villains. And I think we're going to cut it off here just because the next episode is the JT letter, which is fantastic. And I don't want to rush through it. So you guys can expect a really long part four when we get to it. We'll probably we'll try to get to it fairly soon, but we got to wrap it up here. So we're just going to stop with the coach episode next week. It gets really, really, really exciting with JT. Hey, JT, you're writing your letter, letter buddy. <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, yeah, we'll just cut it off for now. I would just say again, thank you for having patience with us through the delay and listening and waiting for us. And uh, our download hits have been astounding lately. Like in the last three months, they've almost doubled what we have been before that. So people are discovering historians. And I really want to thank everyone who writes in and, and supports us and always bugs me on Twitter every five minutes to please put out a new episode once a month. So I just want to say thank you from all of us. And thank again, I'm Mario, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. Yay. I'm Mike Bloom. Yay. <laughs> I'm Paul Osselson. Yay. And we'll be back soon with part four of Heroes vs. Villains. Until then, keep on petting those rabbits on the head and try not to kill them like Rupert because it's really sad after the tenth time. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. What do you think? I think we need to weed off the week. What do you suggest? One of these. One of who? Right here. What you want me to say? I don't know. That's not a way to gather friends, I don't think. Well, you know. How do you two feel about that? I don't like it. Oh, no. I think think he's right. What kind of logic is that, Russell? That's a new one. Oh, my God. There's bread up there.